maybe if this yeah. is After a personal play, foul against personal Detroit. Personal foul unnecessary roughness. Defense number 90 for kicking. Number 90 is disqualified. So not only is this a penalty for unsportsmanlike conduct, but it will give the Green Bay Packers another shot at getting a touchdown and Sue is kicked out of the game. Well, they can argue all they want about this one, but he's not going to get to play anymore this afternoon. You're going to see it right in. Thanksgiving is over, and we are officially in the midst of the holiday gift buying season. <laughs> yep. How you doing, Don? Have you bought anything yet? I did. I got like four or five gifts out of the way. Yeah, you got some people crossed off the list. Yep. Yeah. So it is November 29th. It's our last show in November. Uh, it is episode 53 of the Sportscasters. My name is Steve Bennett. My co-host is Don Russ. Kind of battling, playing hurt a little bit today, huh, Don? Yeah, a little under the weather. Scurvy uh, flaring up. Yeah, it's the wife's fault. Yeah, is it that this time of the year that you really battle the scurvy the hardest? <laughs> I think so, yeah. Yeah. So... Welcome to episode number 53. We have a great show lined up for you today. James Andrew Miller, the author of the ESPN book, Those Guys Have All the Fun, is making his second appearance on the show. He's here to promote the recently released paperback version of the book, which was not supposed to come out until December 1st, but a couple of days ago I was at Barnes & Noble just strolling around and noticed that there was piles and piles of the book available there for you. Uh, also... On the show today, Tim Graham, our good buddy, formerly of ESPN.com, now with the Buffalo News, is going to join us to talk about the fiasco that was Stevie Johnson's Sunday <laughs> afternoon. Yeah. And the we're going to have a segment later in the show. We're going to talk a little bit about Bob Costas' reaction to the whole thing and kind of uh, where Stevie Johnson has put Buffalo into the national spotlight this week. Also, we were scheduled today to talk to Luke Wynn and finally preview the college basketball season. We're recording this show just a couple of hours before a Big Ten challenge game between Duke and Ohio State that Luke was kind of, at the last minute, asked to go cover for Sports Illustrated. So Luke is going to join us next week. Instead of that, and it's almost timely, Lee Jenkins is going to join us today. Obviously, Lee is the main man when it comes to basketball coverage. On Sports Illustrated, he's one of our favorite guests, one of the nicest guys that we have encountered since doing this starting last January. And Lee is going to give us all of the details about the end of the NBA lockout, which kind of came over, out of nowhere over the holiday weekend. I don't think I had any idea they were even talking. Right. And late, late or early Saturday morning, word kind of came that they had solved, solved the thing. So Lee's going to straighten us all out. On that, so we have a lot to do today. Just want to remind you of a couple things. You can find the Sportscasters on Facebook. We haven't had a lot of action on Facebook recently, so let's kind of get things going over there. Facebook.com/slash/the-Sportscasters. Anyone who posts on our Facebook this week and tells me who their favorite guest was on episode number 53 will be eligible for a chance to win the hardcover version of Those Guys Have All the Fun. So check us out on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash thesportscasters. You can also find us on Twitter. We are at sports underscore casters. 
Every Sunday, I do a live blog about the NFL action for www.proplayerinsiders.com. Our email is thesportscasters at gmail.com, and you can find all this information on our website, along with episode number 52, which we did last week with John Wertheim, Richard Sandemir, and Adam Rank, which was really fun. Didn't you enjoy Rank last week? Yeah, it was a good time. Like, um, he matches Dave very well. All right, so let's get this started with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. I totally get my sportscasters promoter license taken away there because I mentioned you could find all kinds of great stuff on the website, but I didn't say you can find the website at www.sports-casters.com. My bad. Anyway, three things for today. Joe Buck definitely undersold it on Thursday, and we played it off the top, but Nadamik and Sue, who has been described as nothing less than a gentle giant off the field, Struck again on Thanksgiving in front of the whole country, probably before most of us even had a single piece of turkey in our mouth. Uh, Nadamik and Sue stomped on an opponent. Initially, he tried to justify it by saying that he was trying to brace himself. Yeah. Probably took another look at the video and said, uh, that's <laughs> not going to go over with anyone. And the word has come down today officially that Mr. Sue will be suspended for the next two games. Big games, one on Sunday night against the Saints and another game at home against Minnesota. He will not be paid until he is reinstated till December 12th, so it's going to cost him some money. Uh, Art Shell will serve as the appeals officer. Uh, apparently, Sue formally appealed the punishment today. I don't know why you would do that. Yeah, it just doesn't look good. It seems like you should accept your punishment and move on. Uh, Sue has been remorseful. He he made a call, apparently uh, Sunday night, to the commissioner to apologize, try to get ahead of it. It's going to cost him one hundred and sixty-four thousand dollars, and then the two game checks. Ouch! And the Lions said today that they they would respect the process the league undertook in order to arrive to the decision. Uh, the team does have a ro- roster exemption during Sue's suspension. Uh, the team also had some bad luck this week. They were forced to place uh, Javid Best on injured reserve. Um, so that's where they stand with the Lions. I'm disappointed. I like Ndamukong and Sue. Uh, he went to Nebraska, played in the Big 12, had one of the most dominant college football games I've ever seen in the Big 12 championship game against yeah. Texas a few years ago. We really made the na- a name for himself. And, you know, it's one of those tricky things where you don't want to take the edge out of him because you, you don't want to lose what's great about the player. But there's a line that you can't cross. We're going to talk more about this as the show goes on with Tim Graham. And what he did was out of line, and he deserved to be suspended. And as a Saints fan, I'm glad he did it when he did because he's a dominant player, and I'm not going to miss him on Sunday night. Yeah, and like you said, the weird thing is you don't want to take that edge away. But I always thought that's kind of what it was. It's like just he plays to that edge. He tries to intimidate people. Like hitting quarterbacks a little bit late or slamming him to the ground a little bit hard. I think his coach would probably like 
not publicly be okay with it, but would say afterward, okay, you know what I mean? You're trying to you're trying to get him to flinch. Uh, I think they played New England in the preseason where they hit Brady constantly, and he looked a little rattled by it. But stomping on a guy, that's beyond that. That's that's just poor decision-making. And he hurt his team in the biggest game of the year because he wasn't there. He extended that drive, which I believe that the Packers capitalized on, and he wasn't there to try to control Aaron Rodgers the rest of the day. Now he's going to miss another huge game against the Saints and uh, miss a division game against the Vikings where Adrian Peterson should be healthy and ready to run up the middle of that defense. So it's definitely a disaster and hopefully soon learns from it because, like I said, I am a fan of his. Yeah. My first thing this week, Jacksonville, who uh, is kind of a whipping boy on our show a little bit. We always joke about how if you're going to move a team, move Jacksonville. Why not? Nobody's there. Uh, Apparently they made some moves. Uh, First... They fired Jack Del Rio, or maybe not first, but uh, among other things, they named, after firing Jack Del Rio, they named Mal Tucker, the defensive coordinator, the interim head coach for the remainder of the season. Uh, they gave GM Gene Smith a three-year extension, and biggest of all of this is they sold the team to Saheed Khan, if I'm saying that right, who will supposedly keep the team in the area. We'll see about that. Yeah, which might be the biggest accomplishment he can make of all of these uh, according to forbes the team was sold for around 760 million dollars or is valued at 760 million dollars so if you're a fan of the jags i guess good for you uh we'll see where this goes we'll see if well, they stay there you know part of this i feel bad a little bad for del rio because he was forced to cut his quarterback just a few days before the start of the season Right. And I don't know what was expected of him when you spring Luke McCowan and a rookie who had no training camp to prepare virtually. I, I, I don't know what they expected. It looks like, uh, according to John Clayton, they're saying that by firing Del Rio now, the Jags will get a jump on the competition and trying to lure a top assistant or free agent or coach into the team. The thing that I find odd is... If Del Rio deserves to get fired, which he very well could be, I mean, they've been a pretty mediocre team for a while, what has the GM done that solidifies his spot for three more years? I mean, aren't they in charge of hiring the people in charge of the draft? They've been terrible at the draft. And, you know, one thing I will say is I think the Weavers have held back the Jaguars for a while now. So that might be the biggest piece of news. Right, maybe. You know, they... they they haven't gone the extra mile, certainly with player salaries. You know, it's the second time they've cut, forced the team to cut their quarterback days before the season started. Um, you know, I know that Mr. Weaver listens to his wife, who is very critical of players who don't live a fine Christian lifestyle. So the Weavers have held the Jags back, and I guess uh, the ownership change should help uh, bring a little life back into the organization, and maybe they can fill that building all the way up to the – to the uh, tarps. <laughs> yeah. You know, so good for them. Yep, good luck. All right. This is getting old. I don't know. I don't I don't know how to say this sensitively, but we spent a lot of time on last week's show talking about a disastrous scandal at Penn State. And if we wanted to, we could spend just as much time talking about a similarly disastrous scandal at Syracuse University. Right. I was a student once at Syracuse University. Decided to transfer close, closer to home, but I've I've been on the campus, spent time there, and 
learned there. And they have a assistant coach who, like the assistant coach in Penn State, has been accused of some pretty heinous sexual abuse charges. One against a ball boy, which ESPN had a pretty damning tape of the ball boy talking to the wife of the accused, whose name is Fine. What's his first name? Something creepy. Bernie Fine. So Bernie Fine has been fired. For now, the co- the school is, and the chancellor has said that he's standing behind Jim Beheim. Doesn't sound like this was anything that would have happened like the Penn State scenario. Right, I was going to say that's, the, the, that's the biggest difference. That would have been reported to him. It seemed like this was more of a part of his personal life they didn't know about. That was behind the scenes, and of right. course now it's all alleged. But yeah, the only the only uh, source, like with the Paterno, he knew about it one way or another, and he told somebody else who told somebody else, but nobody ever told the right people. The only source that sounds like they knew about this was ESPN, and they're the only ones that failed to really report it. So yeah, and we're gonna talk with James Andrew Miller about that very fact. You know, did did he, was ESPN negligent? Uh, reportedly, they've had a tape. The tape that they played since 2003, uh, they claim that you know they had to get voice recognition and things like that. But it seems all too strange that just shortly after the Penn State scandal, that now ESPN's cleared to release this. To release this? Yeah, that's that's ESPN isn't going to look very good on this. And their uh, statement that they released, I saw on Twitter earlier today, said something to the effect of, uh, "We're we're in charge or we're responsible for being." journalistic not necessarily like uh law law, uh, makers or whatever and like wow that's that's a tough statement that's the best you guys could come out with so they're not looking very good at this point and you know it's too bad because they've really owned this story in a way this is their thing to a large extent they've found the evidence they featured it on their program outside the lines they've kind of gotten it to the point where they've gotten it and instead of celebrating breaking a story that could save children in the future, uh, they're going to have some egg on their face as well. So I guess that's kind of the ESPN way, and we'll talk more about that later with James Andrew Miller, the author of the ESPN book. Those guys have all the fun. All right, my second thing this week. Uh, before Tim Tebow arrived on the NFL scene, uh, maybe the most well-known Christian football player was Kurt Warner. Well, now Kurt Warner is telling Tim Tebow maybe to cool it a little bit. And he says to the Arizona Republic, there's almost a faith cliche where athletes come out and say, quote, I want to thank my Lord and Savior. As soon as you say that, the guard goes up, the walls go up, and I came to realize you have to be more strategic. You can't help but cheer for a guy like that, Warner said to Tebow, but I'd tell him, put down the boldness in regards to the words and keep living the way you're living. Let your teammates do the talking for you. Let them cheer on your testimony. So it's interesting. Uh, I think Warner's basically just telling him, look, you're coming from a good place, but you're you're making people uncomfortable maybe. Uh, keep living the way you want to live, but maybe don't make it the way you start every interview because then it almost comes to the point, like you said, where it becomes cliche. It almost seems like you're saying it like someone would say and hello he, or he, something. He He's over the top. He is. I like Tebow a lot. I've said that before. I root for Tebow. Um, I hope he succeeds. I don't know if he will. That's besides the point. 
but he is over the top with religion, religion stuff. And I think because he's over the top, it takes away from what he's trying to get across. And I think that that's what Kurt Warner is saying. And Kurt Warner is a very, very smart yeah. guy. And if I was Tim Tebow, I would definitely take his words seriously and learn from them. Yeah, Warner goes on to say, I know what he's going through and I know what he's trying to accomplish, but I don't want anyone to become callous towards him because they don't understand him or are not fully aware of who he is. And you're starting to see that a little bit. I think what he's saying is you're, you, you have your doubters already because of your football ability or whatever, but that's what you're trying to prove, not that you're a good person. So let people think what they will about you on the field. You don't have to make it about something else off the field. So like you said, Kurt Warner's a really smart guy. I actually like him a lot uh, in his post-career, post-football career too. But, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe Tebow will listen to him a little bit. All right, my last story is a silly one. Adam Rank was on the show last week, and he talked about how he was in Ohio and didn't see a lot of people. Well, there's a few people there, and one of them from Dayton, Ohio. Her name is Rosie Brovent. Okay? Not the best girlfriend. Okay. She dates a guy named Ryan Fitzgerald. Ryan Fitzgerald. Ryan Fitzgerald works as a tattoo artist. Okay. No word here what Rosie does. Well, Rosie was apparently having sex with Ryan's best pal. Okay. I guess the equivalent of Don or my banging Miss Caster or <laughs> myself banging Mrs. Caster. Right. Um, well, I don't think Rosie knew that he was on to her and agreed to have a tattoo done by her boyfriend. Okay. She requested that he tattoo on her back uh, the Narnia trilogy. Okay. Instead, she was left with a pile of excrement excrement with flies buzzing around it. (laughs) (laughs) So... The tattoo artist basically tattooed a giant pile of shit with steam coming off of it and flies hovering around it. That's awesome. Basically saying, you are, my dear, a piece (laughs) of shit. (laughs) She originally tried to have him... Yeah, I was going to ask what the legal ramifications... Yeah, she originally tried to have him uh, charged with assault... But she had signed a consent form agreeing the tattoo design was at the artist's discretion. She said that he tricked her by having her drink a cheap wine and doing tequila shots before she signed (laughs) for the tattoo. She says, actually, I was passed out most of the time and woke up to this horrible image on my back. Well, I can't say I feel bad for you. This story was reported by thesun.co.uk. Uh, it says that now she's suing for 60,000 pounds. I have no idea what that equates to in U.S. dollars, but I think more. So it would be probably, uh, what, $100,000 maybe? I don't know if it's that much maybe more. Maybe not yeah, that more. much more, but more. Uh, so <laughs> it'll be interesting to see. But could you imagine her next boyfriend, you know, binds her, <laughs> dines her, <laughs> brings her home, things get hot and heavy. Flips her around, 
to do it like the dogs do. <laughs> and it's greeted by a pile of poop. That's awesome. That's uh, the best revenge I suppose you can get legally. <laughs> My last one is kind of on a sad note. Uh, again, Adam Rank, we spent a good portion of time talking with him about comedians. And today, uh, after complications from a stroke he suffered on October 19th, Patrice O'Neill passed away in the hospital. Uh, probably best known recently for doing the roast of Charlie Sheen, where he sort of sort of stole the show. He had oh these my. notes, and he had a stroke on October 19th, oh, and he had diabetes. Right he was a, he was a big guy, so uh, a lot of health problems. Prob- yeah, he had a lot of health problems. Six five, giant, heavy set guy. But he was uh, a controversial figure. He was uh, very racial in his humor, very un-PC, dirty. But uh, he was always honest. And like I said, if you get a chance to check out his Comedy Central roast where he basically throws his notes away and just goes off the cuff, it's great. It's one of the best uh, comedic performances I've seen in a long time. And it's uh, sad that these comedians seem to always die young. So uh, to Patrice and his family, uh, good luck and uh, our thoughts are with you. It's like comedians and wrestlers, right? Yeah, comedian ra- musicians maybe to some extent. Yeah, I think comedians and musicians are similar in that it seems like to do one of those you got to be a little messed up and like I think comedians would be the first ones to admit that they're all kind of kind of messed up and his wasn't even didn't even come from a place like that. It, uh, he just, just wasn't healthy. unhealthy. Yep. Yeah. Well, sportscasters, like we said, we wish him and his family the best, and uh, we're gonna. We're going to stop right there. Remember him for his great work. At least he got to go out with a bang and a memorable performance yeah, it was great. a few weeks ago. And we'll be right back with James Andrew Miller. Our next guest is from Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and is a graduate of Occidental College with honors from Oxford University and earned an MBA from Harvard University. He has served as a special assistant and chief speechwriter to Senate Majority Leader Howard Baker. And his first book, Running in Place Inside the Senate, was based partly on his experiences in the Majority Leader's office. In 1984, he began his television career as a producer for CBS News. And in 1999, he became the executive vice president for USA Cable, where he oversaw the scripted series, TV movie, and reality divisions. In 2002, he co-authored a New York Times bestseller with his friend Tom Shales called Live from New York, an oral history about the popular television series Saturday Night Live. Earlier this year, he and Shales got together again to author another New York Times bestseller about the history of ESPN called Those Guys Have All the Fun. The paperback version of the book is in stores in time for the holiday season, making his second appearance on the podcast. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented James Andrew Miller. How are you doing today, Mr. Jim? You're too, you're too kind. <laughs> well, you know, that was a hard one to write because there's literally a million things I left out. I mean, you really had a remarkable career. Oh, well, thank you. It's good to be back. Yeah, we're, we're glad to have you back. Um, certainly the first time we had you, uh, it was one of the definitely one of the more talked about kind of interviews on the show that we really ever had. There's something about ESPN and this book that just really seems to fascinate people. Does it ever surprise you how interested 
people are in this book that, you know, for the most part, focus more on business than sizzle, if that's a way to describe kind of maybe what a lot of people expected from the book. Well, uh, it doesn't surprise me. I think ESPN is endlessly fascinating to uh, the people who watch it. I mean, when you think about it, sports fans are a dedicated bunch. So the way they follow their teams, it, it, it kind of makes sense that they would follow the network that delivers all, most of their news about their teams it, it, with the same kind of uh, veracity. Uh, the thing that amazed me was um, not that people complained about the fact that there was uh, too much business in the book, but that they actually wound up getting kind of intrigued by the business in the book because the whole point of the book was to make sure that all the different angles of ESPN were covered. So, which is to say that if the book had just been a bunch of, like, backroom stories, which, you know, could have easily filled 700 pages, then I think reviewers would have said, okay, fine, you know, we had a lot of fun, you know, reading about the time that, you know, so-and-so did this and the time so-and-so did this. But, you know, where was the explanation about how did this thing get so big? Where was... You know, where was the history uh, and where were the key decisions and moments that, that made it uh, what it is today? And so um, I was really pleased that people kind of got off and got interested in, um, you know, the, in the business story and, and, you know, were surprised by some of the things that happened along the way. We touched on this a little bit the last time you were on the show, but it seems like the main criticism of the book has been that it's too long. And, you know, it seems like people have zeroed in on the number 200 pages. Yet, everyone seems to have a different take on what they like about the book. And nobody who I've ever talked to who said it's too long has told me what should be taken out. Now, you've kind of revamped the book a little bit. What was your strategy with the paperback book? And for someone who's read the hardcover, how is it different? Well, we didn't revamp the uh, the book. We just actually added to it. I think that part of the thing is just psychologically, when you hear 700 pages, I, I think the first, uh, you know, I talked to a, 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 a an agent friend of mine in the West Coast, and he said every time he has a director client who has a movie that's, you know, over two, two hours and ten minutes, the first thing everybody talks about is, oh, my gosh, it's such a long movie, whether they love the movie or not. And I kind of felt this way. You know, when you see 700 pages, you think, oh, my gosh, it's so long. But there's two things to keep in mind, and I don't say this defensively, but just by way of explanation. First of all, since it's an oral history, it's a faster read. Um, you know, uh, so I just got a direct message on my Twitter feed uh, from somebody who said that they read the 700 pages of uh, Those Guys Have All the Fun faster than they read the new Steve Jobs biography which was, you know, a couple hundred pages shorter because um, oral history is easier and faster to read. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is that, look, it's 31 years. It's 24-7 programming. And as we were just talking about before, there's a lot of different aspects that we were trying to, you know, report on. So, um, you know, definitely could have made it uh, a 300-page book, but I don't think it would have been as comprehensive. We had Richard Sandemir on the program last week, and he said something that made me think of you. We were talking about kind of like what stories he covers, and he mentioned that the Mets and the Dodgers' ownership situation has been 
the the gift that is kept on giving uh, for him in the business writing aspect uh, of his career. And (laughs) right away I thought of you in ESPN and how ESPN must be like that, the gift that just keeps on giving for someone who's dedicating their career, or part of it anyway, uh, to covering ESPN. Does it ever end with this company? No. In fact, you know, it's, it's, it's just what amazes me is, you know, the phone rings and people want comments about why ESPN was slow on the Penn State story. And then all of a sudden, two days later, it's, oh, my gosh, what were they doing with the Syracuse story? It just seems to be, you know, something's going on all the time. And I think that, you know, part of it is because they're so big and they're so much a part of, you know, the media culture in our in our country today um, that there's always just another angle. There's always another, you know, controversy and stuff like that. And and so it's, uh, it, is, it is endlessly fascinating, I will say that. You mentioned Syracuse, so let's just touch on that real quick. It seems like ESPN has really been the leader of this story. It seems like they've been the principal uh, people in actually getting it from where it started to where it is today. But there's been a little bit of a controversy that maybe they sat on a tape for over 10 years. I know maybe Mark Shapiro has, has claimed that he didn't know anything about that. Where do you see this story going forward? Do you see there being a little bit of backlash on ESPN because of their handling of possible information in the case? Or do you think they'll be continued to be congratulated for kind of being out in front on the story and really kind of owning it? I think that, uh, I think both. I, I mean, the truth is, and I'm not chickening out on the answer, the truth is that there are, there are people already who are saying that ESPN shouldn't have sat on the tape. It wasn't 10 years, it was 2003. Um, but the truth is that there are people who are saying that they should have done something with the tape back then. And then there are people who are saying, look, you know what? It was almost, they were in an impossible situation. They didn't have any verification. They couldn't collaborate, corroborate the, uh, you know, what was on the tape. So um, it was very hard for them to do anything with it. But that is a debate that's going on right now. I know it's something that ESPN is taking seriously. They are very caught up in, in trying to make sure that their perception, uh, their, their decisions are, um, you know, uh, known to everyone, and uh, you know, it's just a, it, there are going to be people who will criticize ESPN no matter what they do, and then there'll be people who will defend it no matter what they do. Right now, there's a battle for that middle because there are a lot of people who are scratching their heads about some of the decisions that they made regarding um, the information when they had it. A few months back, uh, there was some uh, some rumors that ESPN might take a run at the Olympics and it ended up that their bid was pretty soft and in my mind I kind of said well you know ESPN must not have really wanted the Olympics because you, you always get the feeling with ESPN if, that if there's something they want they'll get it. I was kind of proved wrong in that theory by the way that the World Cup ended up. I, I would imagine that this is something ESPN wanted very badly. They've uh, been a part of making soccer what it is in the United States for a long time now. Um, what happened with the World Cup rights fee, and why won't the World Cup be on ESPN in the future? Uh, it just surprises me. Well, look, I, I found it equally surprising. I was, I was truly stunned by it. But at the same time, I think it reveals um, two truths. One is that ESPN is still part of the Disney empire, and that there are, when you get into those kinds of monies, there is no way that ESPN can unilaterally decide 
how much they're going to spend. They are they are at Burbank's uh, mercy, and so I think that you know Burbank set the word had the, had a limit that they were going to do, and ESPN had to follow along. But I also think it reveals something more interesting, which is that football is sui generis for in the world of ESPN um, and for Disney as well. That they are they spent 1.9 billion dollars. Uh, on the new on the renewal for Monday Night Football, right? So that's 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 a figure that just blows everybody's mind, um, and so I think that when it comes to the Olympics and the World Cup or whatever, um, there's one set of rules, and when it comes to football, there's certainly another. Do you think in any way that the changes at NBC? Um, I'm thinking of. The versus going to the NBC Sports Network, the way NBC seems to be more aggressive in some of these bids, uh, the possibility that the NBC Sports Network might land NFL football on its stations. Do you think ESPN is looking over their shoulder a little bit at what NBC is doing and you know, maybe saying to themselves, wow, we might have a little bit of competition here? Or do you think they've always kind of dealt with the smaller players like Fox and Fox Sports and that, and that it's just they'll just shrug their shoulders and keep doing what they do? No, I don't think they shrug their shoulders at all. I think that they pay a lot of attention to it. I think they take it really seriously. I think they're competitive as hell, and I think that they're going to do everything they can to make sure that you know they don't wind up being a serious, serious competitor. Since we talked last, John Skipper, who is a big part of the book, has been promoted, and then um, as of January 1st, I believe he's going to be the new president of ESPN. How is that going to change things within the company? You know, I don't think that it's going to be. I, I, I was asked earlier today by a reporter, same question. I don't think there's going to be that drastic a change. Um, first of all, Bodenheimer was very uh, respectful of, uh, of Skipper and gave Skipper a lot of autonomy. So I think in many ways... Skipper's been making, um, that's not to diminish, um, you know, Bodenheimer's role, but I think Skipper's been making uh, a lot of important decisions um, already. And the second thing is that, um, you know, it's an insider. So it's not like an outsider's coming in to replace George. And so it's somebody who everybody um, knows already, and I think that they're going to, uh, you know, have a pretty seamless transition. You mentioned on Twitter that there are a few inside guys who are uh, positioning themselves to possibly take over the job that Skipper did, and that one of them is kind of laying low while the others are actively campaigning. Do you have any prediction for who will eventually get that job, or do you not really have a feel for the situation there? I don't have a prediction, in part because it's not clear to me whether or not Skipper's going to keep the same organizational structure. That's the other thing, too. He doesn't have to. So he may decide to mix things up and come up with a totally different uh, architecture. Do you think that is uh, most likely, or do you think it's most likely that he'll keep things the same? I don't know. I think what's most likely is he's going to promote from within. That's what I think is most likely. I'm not sure. He may switch things around a little bit, have things um, organized in a different way, but I definitely think I can't imagine uh, a big job being filled by an outsider. We talked earlier about ESPN being the gift that keeps on giving, and they're not only giving gifts to you uh, annually for things for your book and upcoming volumes of the book, but they also seem to be a gift that keeps on giving to Deadspin. And Deadspin had a story 
a few weeks ago that didn't turn out as big as I thought it might be, but it was about an executive at ESPN, and I hope I don't say his last name wrong, but it's Keith Klinkscales, and he was in a little bit of scandal. The story mentioned that he may have exposed himself on an airplane to Aaron Andrews, who, God bless her, just can't seem to get away from stuff like this, and he had sued before the article had even come out, and just a weird set of circumstances. Is that something you've looked into, and where do you feel the validity is in that story? Yeah, thankfully not. I uh, that was that was after my deadline, and uh, I I must say that's uh, that's something that I really have not looked into. Uh, I I know that it was a pretty big story up in Bristol for a while there. Uh, you know, particularly given the fact that uh, you know he was such a senior executive, and Aaron is so visible. Um, but I'm not I'm not quite sure what the next step is on that. I don't know if the lawsuit is still going forward or not. Yeah, were you surprised that, you know, it seemed like that story came out, it, it, it came with like a huge charge, and it almost seemed like it would be Deadspin's next, you know, uh, Brett Favre story, but then it seems like it kind of fizzled out. Do you think that that might lead us to believe that maybe there was not, it wasn't quite what it seemed? Or maybe there's just a pause in the action. <laughs> I'm going to be curious to see whether or not this, law, this lawsuit goes forward, because if there is, that's going to mean there's depositions, and lots of testimony, and who knows? I know that you're on Twitter. Uh, you're at ESPN Book. The sportscasters are here for the second time with James Andrew Miller, the co-author of ESPN. Those guys have all the fun, which is in paperback, and was scheduled to come out December first. But uh, you know, I'm going to give you. A, I was at the bookstore on Saturday, and they had tons of copies of it out. So, oh well, there you go. At Thanks least for in, the news. Yeah, at least okay. in Buffalo, New York, you can head to Barnes and Noble and pick one up today. We asked the listeners uh, if they had any questions, and we got a couple. At Coach Margas says, in the book, Miller says he couldn't include all those he talked to. Which of those would he have liked to include? Oh, that's an interesting question. Well, I think that there were, um, you know, I mean, look, people like John Anderson, for instance, um, and John Butchergross, and people who um, are really funny and really thoughtful, um, I would have loved more of them. I would have uh, loved more of Scott Van Pelt. I would have loved, I mean, there's a lot of people that, um, uh, you know, really clever, really smart, and, uh, you know, it's just hard to fit everything in. You did talk to Butcher Grass since last time we talked to you? No, 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 but oh. uh, actually I should differentiate because Anderson and Van Pelt I did talk to, Okay. but Butcher Grass, it turned out there was a miscommunication in terms of the interview request, so it wasn't that I didn't want him. Um, I guess he never got the request, um, but he's somebody I certainly would have wanted. One more question from the listeners. At Siebes2392 says, Would you like to make a cameo in the upcoming movie based on the book, and do you think Live from New York will ever make it to the big screen? Uh, Live from New York? Yes, I hope Live from New York will definitely make it to the... Paramount has the option, has option the book. And um, I'm hoping that that's definitely going to happen. And uh, Cameo, sure, I'd rather one of my kids, my son is a big ESPN fan, so I'd rather Cameo go to him. <laughs> He's much better looking anyway. Much more handsome guy. All right, it's the Sportscasters here. Just a couple more minutes with James Andrew Miller, uh, the author of Those Guys Have All the Fun. Again, the paperback version is out. Why don't, if, uh, if I had read the, spent the uh, few days and, and read the 700-word hardcover, what would... What would you tell me? Why should I sit down and read the 700-word paperback? Well, 
I think that there's, you know, there's there's new material. I think, and there's a new afterward. And I think that, quite frankly, I think there were a lot of people who, you know, may not have bought the hardcover because uh, it was so big, and it, you know, it's easier to handle in paperback version. But I also hope um, I've already gotten a couple, um, you know, really nice uh, comments on some of the new stuff in the paperback. So. Uh, you know, hope that the new stuff is uh, entertaining as well. I had a pretty uh, interesting experience. I was lucky enough to have Mike Tirico on our 50th show, and uh, I wasn't quite sure how I was going to play it because Mike Tirico is one of the guys who probably comes off the worst, uh, definitely in the top three in the book, and uh, I delicately danced around some of the issues that were in your book pertaining to Mike Tirico, and it seemed to me like he was ready for it. He um, he answered my questions uh, as best as he could. He downplayed uh, the dispute between him and Tony Kornheiser, and uh, he said that if I were to ask anyone who's worked with him over the last 20 years, they would dispute the claims uh, that he is a sexist that came up in the book. When you hear things like that and people disputing some of the things that you reported in the book, does that bother you? Or do you kind of just, you know, shrug it off and, and just stand behind what you, uh, what you reported and, and, you know, figure that, of course, Mike Tirico is not going to come out of podcasts and say, yeah, I'm a womanizer and a sexist. Right. I mean, you know, I, he's certainly entitled to his opinion, and I wasn't trying to do, you know, a hatchet job with him at all. I think that, look, uh, let's start with the obvious. Uh, and the most important thing first, uh, that there was not one correction that needed to be issued on the book. And, uh, I mean, that's not a bragging thing. I'm, I'm proud of it, though. So it wasn't like um, there was, a, there, there was, I mean, we had, um, you know, a couple typos uh, and uh, stuff like that. But, I mean, in terms of substantive information, um, did not have to retract anything. Uh, I think that, you know, Mike's point is that um, people have enjoyed working with him through the years, and um, I think that, you know, whatever he went through back in the 90s, he certainly survived. Um, and uh, he wi- winds up being, you know, arguably one of the most important people on the payroll now. So, um, you know, he's, had, he's uh, definitely had a second act at ESPN, and, uh, you know, he's got to feel good about that. I want to ask you to just make a couple predictions about ESPN in 2012. What's something uh, that we can expect from ESPN? That, that, I mean, it's an excellent question. I think that, um, look, Deadspin is not going to run out of stuff to write about <laughs> in, uh, ESPN. But at the same time, I think that, uh, you know, 2012 is going to be uh, an important year for, for ESPN because they're going to have to uh, figure out where they're going in terms of creating original content. Um, it's something that, um, to a certain degree, they've shot away from in the skipper years, but I think that now that they control more than 50% of all live sporting events in the United States, I think there's an opportunity for them to get back to the development world, and I, I, I really think that that could be um, you know, a, a signature for them in the, in the coming year. All right, the sportscasters close it off here with James James Andrew Miller on the show for the second time promoting his book, ESPN. Those guys have all the fun. You can follow him on Twitter. He is at ESPN Book. 
Uh, the book, as I said, is scheduled to be released on paperback on December 1st, but you might want to check your bookstore because I did see some copies in Barnes & Noble the other day. Uh, last thing, at the beginning of your fabulous bio that I read earlier, uh, besides embarrassing uh, me in terms of your educational accomplishments, uh, you also spent another life seemingly in the world of politics. And this next year is going to be a huge year for politics. We're going to have a presidential election. And I'm just curious, if you were a Republican, I don't know if you're a Republican or a Democrat, it doesn't matter, but if you were a Republican, who would you choose to run against Barack Obama? And do you think that there's any chance that the person that you choose will be able to defeat Barack Obama in a presidential election? I think the Republican Party has to make a decision. They can make an ideological statement in 2012, or they can uh, make a statement that they want to beat the president. Um, I think that if they make an ideological statement, um, they're going to pick somebody um, other than Romney. I think that if they want to, if they're really serious about beating the president, I think I... I have to believe that Romney gives them the best chance. So it's going to be very interesting to see which way the, the party goes. Um, it, the people who nominate presidents in the Republican Party um, are, tend to be uh, much more conservative, and you don't uh, necessarily get to win, unless you're Ronald Reagan. Uh, sometimes you don't get to win in November. Um, it, you know, um, it, it may not make you the best candidate for the general election. So it's going to be an interesting experiment, something fun to watch um, in 2012 to see which way the party goes. Do you think America would ever, I know he said he wasn't ready in 2012, but maybe in 2016 he decides he is, and we have a different issue. Do you think America would ever elect Chris Christie as president, not based on his politics, but based on his weight? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. I don't think that's going to, I, don't, I really don't think that will be an issue. I mean, listen, Gingrich hasn't exactly got a, you know, washboard abs. <laughs> I mean, he's 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 getting pretty big there himself, but I I don't I I just don't think that's going to be an issue. All right, Mr. Mill, uh, Jim, I'm sorry. Uh, any questions for us? No, but thanks so much for having me. All right, we really appreciate it. Uh, we're looking forward to having you on when it's time to promote the movie. What what oh, is the what is the status of the movie? Uh, we don't we we're we're kind of still getting settled here. We don't know yet, but um. We, you know, I'll, I'll definitely let you know. Okay, Mike Tirico said that Denzel would probably be the best to play him. Uh, that's so funny. Yeah, he that's said funny. that you know that they probably Denzel's the actor that he close most closely resembles in Hollywood. So I just wanted to pass on that that tip. Uh, wow. Um, wow, that's interesting. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, man. <laughs> All right, thanks, buddy. We'll talk to okay. you soon. Bye. All right, we want to send thanks out to James Andrew Miller. And uh, I also want to thank Marlena, who works for the uh, publishing company that published the book. Those guys have all the fun. She's been fantastic. Setting up both interviews, giving us copies of the hardcover and the softcover book. Just really appreciate all the work she's done. Uh, no book club update today. Like we said a couple of weeks ago, we're going to let the book club kind of simmer until after the holidays. And Don and I were, we had a show meeting a couple of days ago. We went out to eat and kind of talked about it, <laughs> some of the things uh, in and around the show. And one thing we decided is that, you know, 
Final Fantasy is not going to be here with us very much longer. No, we're not big fantasy hockey or baseball guys or anything. I mean, we play fantasy hockey, and I've played fantasy baseball, right. and maybe occasionally we'll have the segment. Maybe we could touch on you it. You know, to touch, you know, maybe. But it's not going to be weekly. Right. And so we're going to need something to fill the void. And maybe in the next couple of weeks, we're going to pilot a few different ideas. And one idea is right at, that's right at the top and one idea that I think that we might I like this one. we might like the best is just to every week have a list, a top 10 of something in sports. It's obviously not an original idea. No. We're not saying that. But Everybody it's something likes that everyone loves. Everyone right. loves to see a list, to make a list, to have a list. And as a way to extend our brand, which our agent is always insisting on, we need more Stephen Dye on the show. We need Steve Moore Dye on the show. And I'm always saying, no, no, no. We need more time from Tim Graham. We need more time from James Andrew Miller. So we were trying to find the perfect balance and maybe the idea to fill in the void for the book club here or for Five on Fantasy when it comes is this idea of lists. So what we're going to do today is we're going to practice and see <laughs> how it goes. Be f- don't be afraid to email us at sportscasters at gmail.com. Let us know if you think this idea is maybe too generic. But me and Don came up with one list this week. Probably when we would do it in the future, we would want to do it in a longer amount of time, kind of the 15-minute range that 5 on Fantasy usually is. Right. But today we made one list, the top 10 Sabres goals of all time. Number 10. Uh, some of these we are, just based on our time of birth, are a little bit too young to remember. So we're just going to give an homage to Gilbert by saying any one of his 512 goals, uh, p- perhaps the greatest Sabres forward of all time, deserves to be on our list. And since we don't explicitly remember any one goal, we're just going to say pick one. Uh, yeah, I do remember his 500th goal. I remember the anticipation for it. I remember Mike Foligno assisting on it and jumping into Gilbert's arms. Yes. He's a guy who played 1,191 games for the Sabres. He had 512 goals. He's in, a, in the Hockey Hall of Fame. In a defensive era, too. So. Yep, and he also came to play in the playoffs. He played 90 playoff games. He had 33 goals and 70 assists, so he had over a point a game in the playoffs. Clearly one of the greatest Sabres of all time. At number nine... Uh, we're going to talk more about this game in the future but on the on this list. But Game 5 of the 2007 playoffs, uh, the Sabres versus the Rangers. It's Round 2 of the Eastern Conference playoffs. Maxim Finneganov scores an overtime goal on Henrik Lundqvist. Lundqvist yep. He actually didn't play the game before. He was in the Lindy Ruff's doghouse, but what we later found out was he was injured with a concussion where he tripped Playing on a soccer, soccer ball in the hallway? Yeah. Right, so he wasn't a healthy scratch like they had said. He had actually come back from a concussion. He scores to win Game Five in overtime for the Sabers. Number eight. Uh, I remember where I was the next day talking about this goal, but I was in high school, I believe, probably eighth grade or so. It was 1994 at Sabers Sabers Devils Game Six in the fourth overtime. Dave Hannon scores to win what I believe was the longest game of all time at the time. I don't think it stands as that anymore, but at the time it was. It was certainly right up there. Great goaltending game. Yeah, and the famous line was the series is going back to where Jimmy Hoff Hoff is. Number seven, we have a tie. In 2006, the year after the lockout, Danny Breer scored two unbelievably big playoff goals. Ironically, it was the first playoff game at home and the last playoff game at home. Game one of the four versus five Series, Sabres versus Flyers, Danny Breer scores in overtime. It was his 13th shot of the night. First one that went in gives the Sabres one, 
a one to nothing lead over the Flyers and kind of jump starts this really exciting run yep. that Buffalo had. The last win of that was Game Six at home again at the HSBC Arena. Sabers get out to a two nothing lead on Carolina. Carolina chips away, ties the game with about four or five minutes left in the third period. Goes to overtime and Danny Briere scores again to literally put the series the the city into a frenzy. Oh, yes. I remember walking out of the arena. I've never had so much fun, and I thought that night, more than any other night, that the Sabres would win the Stanley Cup. Didn't work out. They ran out of players. Carolina, give me my cup back. (laughs) I think for anybody aged, I don't know, 20 to 30, that 2006 Sabres team has got to be their favorite team of all time. Uh, Number six, we, again, I don't explicitly remember this from being there because I wasn't born yet, but uh, Rene Robert, Scores in the fog game, game three at the odd to win the game five four in overtime. Any Sabres fan has probably seen that goal and countless highlights. Uh, very famous goal in the world of hockey in general. Right, it was the first time the Sabres were ever in the Stanley Cup Finals. Uh, you know, playing the Flyers actually. Right, uh, playoffs were set up a little bit differently then, so the Sabres were able to meet the Flyers, and you know that game's famous for the fog and. Former Sabres announcer Jim Lorenz killing a bat yep. with a stick. Number five is the other time the Sabres were in the Stanley Cup Finals. 1999, goals scored on June 8th, a very important day for me. Uh, Jason Woolley scored in overtime. It was called the shot heard around the hockey world by Rick Jenneret to give the Sabres a one nothing lead. It was in Dallas's Reunion Arena. And it was another time that I thought the Sabres might win the Stanley Cup, but knew they had a lot of work to do. They ended up losing on the famous no goal, which is not <laughs> on our list because it wasn't a goal. It is not. Uh, number four, uh, again, young Sabres fans will remember this one very well. Jason Pominville in the Ottawa series that was full of tight, hard-fought games. Uh, you're always on the edge of your seat. Jason Pominville ends that series in game five, uh, beating their captain, Alfredson, shorthanded, to win an overtime in 2006. Now do you believe was the call there. Right. And definitely poor goaltending by Emery, who should have probably poked, poked it. Yep. Yeah. All right. That brings us to number three. This was a game I was at. I was actually at all three left on the list. Game three, or number three, is Derek Plant winning game seven of the first round of the 1997 playoffs with a slap shot that got through the goaltender's glove and trickled into the net. Couldn't have went in the net probably any slower, considering how hard the shot was. I always forget the goalie was. That wasn't Laleem, right? No, it was. Uh, I'll look it up while you're doing. It's the another French Canadian goalie. I yeah, believe, a little guy who wore number one. Yeah, I always forget the goalie. But that. yeah, Derek Plant scores a goal to bring the Sabers into round two, and uh, they ended up losing in round two to the Legion of Doom Flyers. Number two on the list is probably many people's number one. It's from April 94 in the odd and the Sabres sweeping the Bruins. Uh, It's, of course, the Mayday goal. Uh, Brad May, mostly a tough guy in his whole career, beats Hall of Famer Ray Bork and then smokes the goalie to uh, send the Sabres on to the second round. You know, and there's some some legend to that goal that he apparently kissed his stick right before. Yep. And uh, great call by Jim and – Every hockey fan, not just Buffalo fan, has heard that one and right. knows exactly what that looks like. All right, so for the number one goal, we are going to let Rick Jenneret tell you. Close to the boards, though, the Rangers. There's Drury after it in the corner. Drury spun it out in front. There's the shot. 
That is Chris Drury scoring. Uh, that was Game Five of the 2006. 2007 playoffs. The Sabres were the President Cup winner that year. They started the season 10-0. and And I think as a community, we all felt like that team was the one that was going to finally bring a championship to Buffalo. They were so uneven all playoffs. And the reason that goal is so big, the Sabres in round one had defeated in five games the Islanders. But they didn't feel dominant. It didn't feel right, though. Right. Even though it was the weirdest five-game win. It just didn't, yeah. didn't feel right. So then the Sabres win the first two games at home against the Rangers, but lose the next two at Madison Square Garden. Yep. So this is game five, and in a, in a big way, it kind of feels like the season's on the line. And it feels like everything you dreamed, everything you hoped, everything you believed was close to ending because there was a 0-0 game for a long time, and the Rangers scored a goal that ended up being reviewed for a long time. But the whole time it was for being no reviewed, reason. Yeah. everyone knew it was a goal. So everyone, there's 19,000 people inside, there's 5,000 people outside, and everyone knows the Sabres are losing this game one nothing, and there's no not much time left. And it feels like everything is about to die. And then Chris Drury saves the day with that goal. And I can remember the feeling. It's the greatest feeling I've ever had after a hockey goal. Don feels the same way. That's why it was number one on our list. Sabres fans, we'd love to hear what number one would be on your list. You can email us to sportscasters at gmail.com. Let us know what you think about the segment. Maybe we'll try it again next week. And we are going to take a break right now. And we are going to come right back with Lee Jenkins. Our next guest is a native of San Diego, California, and graduated from Vanderbilt University. In 2007, he joined Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com as a senior writer. He recovers basketball, football, and the sport closest to his heart, baseball. He has been honored for his writing by the New York Press Association, the Football Writers Association of America, and the Colorado Press Association. It was named New York's Best Sports Writer by The Village Voice. He is making an unprecedented sixth appearance on the Sportscasters, and has been the most professional, kind, and accommodating guest we've ever had. A warm welcome to the great Lee Jenkins. How are you doing today, Lee? Great, Steve. It's a heck of an introduction. Thank you. Thanks you, for having me. You know, we have, uh, we have had a great relationship with you over the last couple of years, and I just want everyone to know uh, that this is last minute, and I really appreciate you being there for us. But, you know, honestly... Last week, when I finished the podcast, I was pretty convinced that there was going to be no reason to call you anytime soon huh. to talk about the NBA. And sure enough, you know, right when I thought that it just wasn't going to happen, it seems like it, it, ha- it has happened. What do you know about where the owners and the players stand? And do you think that the date of December twenty-fifth, Christmas, where they say the season resumes, is that is that reasonable? Oh yeah, I mean it's going to happen. It would be uh, it, it would be a shocking upset if it didn't. Um, especially when you see our magazine this week, um, we're basically hailing the return of the NBA. And so yeah, it's uh, it's on. I think a lot of those those folks actually would have agreed with you a week ago. I mean, even up until. Um, you know, I found out up until the early morning hours of Saturday, um, there were people on both sides who really didn't think a deal was going to get done. Um, but I think they realized that 
Um, they kind of reached a point of no return. I mean, maybe they would have been able to salvage a 50-game season. That's debatable. Um, but really, it was all on the line uh, in, in that last in that last bargaining session. Um, and they came together and, and got it done. And you know, I mean, it's, it probably shouldn't have gone on this long. It never should have come to this. Um, but I do tip my hat to them for for getting it done because chances are, in the grand scheme of things, um, a this is better than I think a lot of what people thought was going to happen happen, um, and it also something that I think will be forgotten. You know, in a couple years, I don't really think that a, a 66 game season is going to hurt the NBA so much. A lot of people a few days before the agreement was made kind of started to really turn their back on the NBA and to really express their frustration. There was a huge movement on Twitter uh, called hashtag unfollow NBA. And do you think that in any way that kind of the players and the owners got the message that the fans weren't going to tolerate this and that played a part? Or do you think that this just kind of had its natural evolution? It was the last minute and that's when deals get done. You know, Steve, I mean, I wrote about this uh, in, in the magazine kind of this week and you, you, you kind of, I, I do think that in some ways there was a moment, it happened about 2.30 in the morning, um, where they did start to talk in a little bit more broad terms. It wasn't as much about negotiation and they talked about, you know, what a lost season would mean um, in terms of fan support, but also in terms of the ramifications with arena workers and the credibility of teams and the credibility of the league and and it still came together in the next 30 minutes or so. So, I, you know, I don't know. I don't like to give these sides too much credit because I think that a lot of this just comes down to millions upon millions of dollars. Um, but I do know that they knew that they were going to be da- doing severe damage to their brand, um, and the threat of that I think did compel some action. It had to have. I can't remember who it was, but... A couple of weeks ago, we were kind of getting in the discussion of like championships and winning championships, and I thought of this. I thought of this in 1994, before the the New York Rangers had won the Stanley Cups, first time in 40 years. The NHL had all this momentum, and the following season was shortened, kind of similarly to the way the NBA season was. And the New Jersey Devils won their first Stanley Cup, mm-hmm. and people kind of looked down on that cup a little bit. And it wasn't until they won it two more times that they were kind of looked at as a championship quality team. Mm-hmm. What do you think would happen to a guy like LeBron James if he wins the championship this year and never wins it again? Will this season be looked upon as legitimate or will people always look upon this season as kind of shortened and cheaper and not the way that Jordan yeah. and Dirk and Wade won them? Yeah, no, it's a good, really good question because it's funny. The same thing happened with the Spurs. You know, they won the short right in '99, and then right? they came yeah. back and won again. Obviously, so it, you know, we look at them as kind of a great team of this era. Um, I think it's probably unlikely that LeBron would never win another one um, if he won this year. He's got so many critics um, that I wouldn't put it past them, sort of diminishing the accomplishment because um, you'll have teams like. You know, it's weird. A lot of these teams. I think the Heat, this is a good situation, or not a bad situation for the Heat, because they kind of know where they are. They went, they took their lumps last season. A team like the Lakers, you know, which would be a threat to the Heat, it's going to take them time with a new coaching staff. Uh, Boston maybe should be helped by the lockout. You know, you can look at it differently for a lot of different teams. Um, you know, to me, I won't, I, I wouldn't shortchange LeBron for winning one. I think there's a big difference between 66 and 50. Mm-hmm. You know, what happened in 99 was a really 
it's a bizarre season. I talked to Jeff Van Gundy the other day a little bit about it. You know, a 50-game season, um, teams playing back-to-back-to-back, which they're going to be doing again, by the way. Um, but just the, how condensed that thing was made for some really ugly basketball, the lowest points per game since the advent of the shot clock. Um, it, it was just a terrible season. Even Van Gundy's team went to the finals. They were only four games over 500, the Knicks, going into the playoffs, and then they kind of went off in the playoffs, of course, and, and made it to the finals. So I, I draw a distinction, I guess, between this. I think this will be more of a real-feeling season. Um, but look, like everything with LeBron, I'm sure it'll be nitpicked, and some people probably will put an, put an asterisk by it. Uh, the, ba- the last big, well, besides the NFL... Uh, besides the NFL, but uh, the National Hockey League, when they, they went away for a year, a couple of years ago, and they came back, and there was a, there was a lot different. And even with the NFL, uh, they have came b- back with some, some changes that are noticeable. It, what's changed with the NBA? Is there anything we're going to notice, or has this lockout really been about changing from the 55 to 51% or whatever? Or is there going to be visible changes that we'll notice as fans? Well, I think that'll take a few years, um, but I think that what you'll notice in a few years um, is a little bit more, probably a little bit more evening between the small markets and the big markets. Now, I mean, I've talked to a lot of people about it, and there's a pretty wide range of debate about how much of a difference there will be in those terms, how much the small markets will be helped. But over time, nobody disputes the fact that they'll be helped to some degree. And I, it, part of it is that 57 to, to 50 that you referenced, that, that BRI change, because it's $300 million extra dollars in the owner's pockets. Really, those small market owners, they're not guaranteed a profit, um, but they're, they're pretty, you know, if they run their business well, they're going to make a profit. So really, they have less of an excuse not to spend. There's also now a salary floor of 85% of the cap. So small market teams have to spend money. Um, and then you have a more punitive luxury tax. So teams like the Mavericks and the Lakers, you know, who as a matter of course go over the salary cap are going to be penalized more. You're still going to have teams, many executives think, dip into that luxury tax, but maybe not as many as do it now and as regularly because you're going to have a repeater tax. You're going to have, it just, it get, it's going to get to be a, a huge burden on those owners who do, who do dip into it. Uh, so I think over time that's going to be a major factor. You're also going to see a dwindling of the NBA's middle class. I mean, people kind of get driven crazy by these guys who make $7 million and score eight or nine points a game with four or five rebounds. Those guys are going to be priced out, I think, because teams aren't going to be willing or able to carry them and then still able to stay under the tax. So there's going to be a huge emphasis on player development, on the D-League, on finding guys. I referenced Gary Neal in this week's magazine played for the Spurs last year. He made $788,000, and he scored nine-some points a game. Guys like that are going to be crucial. You need players who make about a million if you're going to be able to afford your stars. And as everybody who follows the NBA knows, it's not like the NFL or baseball. It's a star league. You need to pay your stars and then fill around the fringes from there. You're not going to be able to compliment them as much with $8 million guys. You're going to have to compliment them more with $1 to $2 million guys. This might sound harsh, and they would never call it this, but it kind of sounds like you're outlining the stars and scrubs strategy in fantasy football, uh, where you build a team with your stars, and then you surround them with the lesser talent. That's right, and to some degree, that's what the NBA has always been, and, and that's what it, you know, in, in markets like Oklahoma City, that, that's what it is, and you know, you're going to need that young talent. Um, you know, what you want is young talent um, that doesn't make a lot of money yet, So, but you're right, it's it's 
that's what the NBA is. I mean, all those teams, those small markets, have been working under this premise forever. Or, you know, anyway, and I think there are some there are some clauses that also make it a little easier um, for teams to keep you know young young star players. You know, you can give thirty percent of your cap to a young player who has either one two who's either won an MVP, been All NBA twice, or an All Star starter twice. So you look at a guy like Derrick Rose. Uh, like what Derek Blake Griffin will be, probably. Um, you know, players like that are going to be easier. No, nobody really worried about Chicago keeping Derrick Rose anyway. But a guy like Griffin, who I think there was some concern um, that he might not stay with the Clippers, now it's just there's so much financial incentive for a guy like that to stick around. It's harder to see him leaving. Do you, I, when, I, when I think back to the end of the NFL lockout, there's some players that, that stick in my head, Jeff Saturday and, and Drew Brees and a few other guys that were really out front and vocal about their role in, in settling this. And I know that, uh, I, ho- I hope I'm right here, Derek Fisher was uh, one yeah. of the retired players working on this. Who are some of the active players that had a role, if any, in settling this? Well, no, I mean, Fisher's the Lakers, I mean, he's still the Lakers starting point guard. And he okay. Was, he was, he was the, the guy. I mean, he's the president of the union, and he was in there the whole time. It's interesting, you know, go back to 99, Patrick Ewing was in that role, and he came back kind of out of shape, and he hurt his Achilles, and really his career was never the same. So I think Fisher will be an interesting guy to see. He's put a ton of time into this. Um, he's really been in the spotlight more than ever. Um, I mean, he's been in the spotlight, too, of course, because he's won championships for the Lakers. But, but you know, as far as his uh, public speaking role, it's been, it's been interesting. It'll be kind of interesting to see how he now you know, leaves the Lakers, you know, how much he has left, because this is a guy who has been flying back and forth New York to L.A. It's, you know, it's been a lot of, he's had a lot of late nights and a lot of tough bargaining sessions. Um, so, I, you know, him, Maurice Evans is another player, you know, not as well-known of a player as, as Fisher. Um, and then, you know, behind the scenes, I know Kobe Bryant's the guy who really pushed to get this thing settled. You know, there were some, I think, hard-line players, um, but I think a guy like Kobe Bryant, um, who, who is really good friends with Derek Fisher, I mean, it's kind of a big brother-little brother relationship between the two ever since Bryant came into the league, and I know that, you know, Kobe was a real big reason why Fisher signed back in L.A. next year, or last year, I should say, and I'm sure that Kobe was in his ear, really wanted to get a deal done and get the season going. I think he's... You know, he's one of those players who's you know willing to you know sacrifice a little bit to to play basketball. Did all the players who uh, left and went overseas protect themselves in the uh, yeah. event that this was settled? Is everyone going to make it back? Most, but not all. All the guys who signed in China don't have opt-out clauses, so a team like the Nuggets okay. severely affected. Kenyon Martin, J.R. Smith, and Wilson Chandler, none of them have opt-out clauses, and they're all in China. Wow. Um, th- those guys. Some of them are going to negotiate opt-out clauses. And, and I should say Smith and Martin are free agents anyway, uh, so the Nuggets weren't really counting on them coming back. And some of them are going to work on trying to get back. Uh, but those three guys are going to have a real hard time. Same with Phoenix's Aaron Brooks. Anybody who's in China, most of those big-name guys you heard about, though, have opt-outs, and I think they are all going to be more than thrilled to, uh, to return. I mean, some of them have gotten them. Um, Sort of a look at another the other side of life. You know, playing in Europe is uh, it sounds great in theory, um, but I think when you get over there, you realize that um, the NBA lifestyle is a little better. So now the Players Association did actually certify and file a suit. Will they just push to have that dismissed? Yeah, it'll and, be dismissed. It'll yeah. be um, resolved. And you know, a lot of this now is just formalities. It's just it's going through these steps. And I know there's you know paranoia that you're going to miss steps, but. Uh, yeah, this was it. I mean, that night, 
that morning, you know, it's at this point, it's it's pretty much on. It would have to be um, one of these formalities would have to be hung up, and I don't think anybody on either side of the aisle at this point expects that. I mean, there's going to be training camps going to start uh, December 9th, and a free agent period is going to open at the same time, and it's going to be an insane rush um, of two weeks to begin the season. And you're going to have Steve a really chaotic, even more chaotic, I think, than the NFL situation because. Guys are going to be signing places with two weeks of camp. You could have a guy switching teams, showing up to his new team on opening night, and you know not really knowing the system. So you know, and with, with a compressed season, you, you want to, you don't you can't afford a slow start. You know, teams got to be good from from day one. So the, some of those situations are going to be interesting. If a guy like Tyson Chandler, for instance, signs with another team, um, and he's so key to your defense. How is that all going to go, you know, if he has four days to get ready for a season? And then if that team gets off to a slow start, do you really get the bang for your buck? So it's going to be it's going to be weird, but it's still better than the alternative. Right. And, you know, it sounds it, – it's wow, it's really hard to avoid the comparisons between what happened with the NFL last summer and what ha- what's happening here with the NBA. What I know with the NFL, we feared, we feared for the teams that had a change in regime – and that's pretty much how true, with the exception of the San Francisco 49ers. That's right, yeah, well, uh, that, right. Who are, you know, 9-2 and two and, and, and they're controlling their own destiny for a, a bye week. But is, is that how we're going to look at the start of this season as well with the NBA? Are we going to fear for the teams who make coaching changes and look at the teams who have a little, little bit of stability as the ones that are going to be most likely to emerge as the the leading teams and yeah, and without a doubt. I mean, I think without a doubt, you have to at least have that assumption going in. You know, I think you know, a really interesting team to watch is, like I said, is going to be the Lakers. I mean, they've run this triangle offense for a long time under Phil Jackson, and it's been, you know, it's been really good to them. They're an older team; they kind of were set in their ways, um, and now they have a new coach coming in who's going to, you know, is going to have a totally different system. So they'll be interesting to watch the personnel. They'll stay pretty much the same, but but yeah, the system is going to be different. You'll have other teams with with pretty significant personnel changes. In New Orleans, I think only has seven players under contract right now. Um, Denver's got a lot of flux, as I mentioned. You know, a team like the Celtics, um, this is probably pretty good for. Uh, those guys got rest, but now they're going to have a really compressed schedule. And it goes back to: Would you rather play 82 games, you know, spread over the usual amount of months, or would you rather play 66 games all tight together? Some of those three games in three days situations are going to be really hard for a team like the like the Celtics to navigate. I think the Heat is probably in good situation. I mean, they they kind of figured out a lot of their issues last season. They're going to have new complementary parts. Uh, but you know, in the NBA, the more GMs you talk to, those complementary parts, yeah, they're significant. But everybody falls in line behind their stars. The sportscasters are here with our good friend Lee Jenkins, uh, who of course you can follow on Twitter. He's at SI underscore Lee Jenkins. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, yeah, at SI underscore Lee Jenkins. And uh, sounds like he's going to have a big story in the magazine, which you can start downloading on the iPad at midnight if you'd like, or uh, check for it in your mailbox on Wednesday or Thursday or newsstands. And uh, I want to ask you one last thing. And uh, you answered any way you like. Um, let's see, three weeks ago, we had this big scandal at Penn State. And since then, I've talked to. Jeff Perlman, Steve Russian, John Wertheim, and I've asked them all the same question, and each of them have answered it in a different way, and I'm just curious to get your opinion because I respect it. 
Way back at episode on episode six of this program, Joe Poznanski was kind enough to come on, and he really helped springboard us into legitimacy and make us what we are today, and we have a soft spot in our heart for him. He has been dealt the worst hand probably in the history of sports journalism. He's been embedded at Penn State. He's been working on a book about Joe Paterno, and never before has someone been forced to deal with a thesis-changing bomb being dropped on them like Mr. Poznanski is right now. And I'm just curious, like I asked the other guys, and you can answer it any way you like, or you can abstain if, if you prefer. But I'm just curious, what would you do if you were him, and how would you handle that situation? And I know John Wertheim spent a little bit of time with him and told us that you know, you just feel for the guy because he he's rattled, as, as I could imagine he'd be, and we're thinking about him, and I know his colleagues are, and I just wanted to get your take well, on the situation. You know, I'm not going <laughs> to... I mean, it's, Joe's great. He's a great talent, but um, you know, I mean, I don't know. He's fully capable. We, we all are in these situations where we're kind of reporting a story and we have a feeling about it, and the player reporting the story about gets hurt or something else happens to them. And I know it's a much smaller scale, obviously, than what Joe's dealing with. Um, but in those situations, you have to adapt. And at the end of those situations, you often think, "Wow, I, I got a better story than I thought I had." I mean, with all due um, respect to Joe. I'm not sure I would have read um, just a, like a regular biography of Joe Paterno, um, but I know I'll read whatever he comes up with now because right. it, it could be more fascinating and more rich than he knows. I mean, Joe's such a great uh, storyteller. Everybody knows that, but he's also an incredible reporter. And, you know, if he goes back over this with the context he has and looks at it as context and uses the people he talks to to kind of dive deeper into this and, and tell the other side of the story with the side of the story he had before working his context. It could be a, uh, a really rich, it could be a classic. It could be a really rich book. And, um, you know, and Joe's the kind of guy who could pull, who could pull that off. I certainly couldn't. So, um, you know, whatever he comes up with um, in a strange way could, could do the readership of, uh, could do his readership in even better service than, than it would have. Thank you, Lee. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate we'll, it, man. We'll talk to you soon. All right, buddy. Take care. Take care. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Steven Jackson, Miles Austin, Leonet Ocho Cinco, TJ Cushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. I would like to thank Lee Jenkins for making his sixth appearance on the show. Uh, Lee kind of got me straight. I wasn't really sure about all of the uh, the NBA lockout and kind of it, it surprised me as I told him. But thanks to Lee Jenkins for being on the show once again. Uh, five on fantasy for today. We're getting down to it here. Fantasy season... You know, for me, I start thinking about it in July uh, when the magazines start to appear. Yep. I like to get the magazines just because they're they're fun. They're probably obsolete at this point. Really. Yeah, probably. With the probably internet. don't really need to be printed, but they're fun. Just listen to the podcast. Yeah, and of course that. Uh, but, you know, we're getting down to it. It's week 13. I'm in one league where the regular season's over. Uh, they, they don't like week 16 as much as most of us don't like week 17. So they only play 12 weeks. And uh, it's also, so playoffs may have started. If not, 
you're making your last push for the playoffs or you're trying to secure the bye. And I saw something on Twitter the other day where someone on my timeline had complained that he went with the start your studs at all times strategy, played Frank Gore, and didn't play, I think, I, I want to say it was D'Angelo Williams, was someone like that, uh, someone in the probably 20s of the rankings that he didn't right, start, right. Um, and he got burned on it and lost. So I guess my question to you to get us started here, Don, is what is your general strategy when it comes to making a lineup? Nothing's more important at this time of the year than making a lineup. Getting your best guys and giving yourself a chance to win. So are you a start your studs guy or are you a matchup guy or are you a combination of both? With start your studs, I think it's a I think that rule follows mainly and it's most important at the beginning of the season. You don't want to draft a team and then all of a sudden week one get cute. I mean you drafted the guys in the order you did because you prioritize them that way. Um now I I think a lot can change. So I guess I'm kind of both because there's certain guys like Victor, I'm sorry, yes, Victor Cruz, who, would, does he fall in the stud category now? Because if he does, then I'm starting him over guys probably like, uh, I mean, you could. Marcus Colston. Maybe, yeah. depending on the matchup. You might start him over uh, Hakeem Nix on the other side of right. the field there. Good so, um, You know, I, th- I think what it is is that we have a lot more information now than right. we did at week one. At week one, you only have the information that you prepared your draft with. So that's why start your studs is as important as it is then. Now, your studs have changed, right? A guy that you might have counted on as a stud in the beginning of the season might not be a stud anymore. And another thing that has changed is what is a good matchup and what isn't, right? Going into the season, we have preconceived notions about what teams are. Well, now we have actual information that will back up what teams are. And in the example of Frank Gore last week against Baltimore, Baltimore right. he was one of your sits. Right. And the reason you had Frank Gore as one of your sits, it's not because you don't think Frank Gore is a stud, but because you have all this information about the Baltimore defense and what the Baltimore defense does against running backs. And that's why you suggested to start. To sit, Frank Gore, and if the person on my timeline had listened to the podcast, maybe they would have taken your advice. Right, and there's guys like uh, experts like Matthew Barry who will tell you never draft a defense till the last round, and exactly the reasoning you just gave is why, because you don't know who teams are going to be. At the beginning of the year, Philadelphia probably looked like a, a gangbusters defense, and look at they can't stop anybody against the run. They're not even that great against the pass. They're probably an average to below average defense this year, and so they you never know who you towards the end of the season you get the uh benefit of hindsight as far as what we've learned about about teams so yes i would typically start my studs and a lot of it has to do with who i have behind him if i had d'angelo williams would i have started him over frank gore probably not but even though d'angelo I, williams was on my start list he was on your frank start gore list. was on your sit list <laughs> Yeah, it would have been a t- it would have been a tough call just based on what D'Angelo Williams had done up to this point. Right, this because year. it is about information, right? Fantasy football really is about what you have to do to be a good player is to collect information every week, and to use that information to put yourself in the best position possible. Because there's so many variables in this game. A lot of it is about luck. 
I mean, maybe you have Percy Harvin in a league where kick returns only count if they're touchdowns, right? And you put Percy Harvin in the lineup because you think he might have a kick return touchdown, and he gives you the longest play in the history of the NFL that isn't a scoring play. <laughs> right. Stuff like that just happens. So all you can do is gather as much information as you can and use that information to the best of your ability to give yourself the best chance to win. The other thing I'll say about that is, and I know it didn't turn out that way this week because the 49ers-Ravens game was, I think, the Thursday night game, correct? Correct, yes. So you couldn't have used this piece of information then, but most leagues will allow you to make roster moves up until kickoff. So if the player is not involved at the kickoff of the Thursday night game, you can make a move later. Well, maybe at the after the Thursday night games, you're way behind. And you have someone like D'Angelo Williams, like if he hadn't played that that night with a good matchup like he had against Frank Gore, who has a or I mean Frank Gore didn't play that or played just that say night. they played it on Sunday. Right. For Frank Gore and D'Angelo Williams both play on Sundays. Right. D'Angelo's got a nice matchup matchup, Gore doesn't, and you're way behind. Maybe you think the upside with D'Angelo Williams is a lot higher. You're willing to take the risk. You're willing to take the risk, but maybe the I don't know, eight points you might feel like you're guaranteed with Frank Gore would be the safer bet if you're winning. So there's chances like that to make make choices of stud versus And the size matchup. of your league matters. As I, we've been playing the 16-team league, and I noticed that really the best way to win in the 16-point league is make sure you get guys who are just going to be out there. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Just make sure that every player you're starting is a – that might be sound really obvious, but in these 16-team leagues, guys like – Preston Parker, they're valuable, right? You know, because when you get to start at your third receiver, they're definitely rostered. You just yep. you just want them to be get a few touches. Yep. My my uh, point of conversation this week is injured players and how to handle them when they come back. I mentioned a sit last week was Andre Johnson. That said, I played him in a league, and unfortunately for my team i was right and andre johnson was held pretty much in check and had a had a very mediocre day did he have a point i think he had maybe two catches it took two him catches. forever to okay. get his first catch right but yeah he was practically worthless um so my question for you is what do you do with injured players coming off the injury you know it depends on the guy i know that's a cop-out but for example, Adrian Peterson, if he's playing this week, he's in my lineup. Right. Because, one, they don't have anyone worth anything to limit him. You know, like, they're not going to – like, let's say it was D'Angelo Williams was the guy. It's like, well, they have Stewart, so they're not going to rush him. Right. Minnesota, they don't have anything else. So if Peterson's healthy, I'm pretty confident they're going to give him the ball right. as much as he can handle it. And I'm pretty confident – I've seen Adrian Peterson play – well, I've seen him play every game he played in college. And a few of those, he played with a bad ankle. And I know he can run with it. Right. So part of that is information I've collected over time. Some guys I'm just not sure about, and I'd rather wait and see. Because it might be that their, ta- their team has changed significantly since the last time they played. And Andre Johnson's a great example of that. Yep. When I, the last time Andre Johnson played – Matt Schaub was his quarterback. Right. This week he gets into the lineup and TJ Pinet or Yates, TJ Yates yeah. is his quarterback for most of the day. So again, it's about the information I've collected over the year. And I guess just like I do with anything else, I'm just gonna analyze the information I have and try to make the best decision I can. Some guys I'm just never going to sit. I'm stubborn like that, and I'm never going to not play Adrian Peterson. 
I had the first overall pick in the draft. I picked him for a reason, and nothing has changed <laughs> to make me change my mind about that. I'd make that pick again tomorrow Yeah, without regret. I found myself wishing a lot this week since all of my leagues do go 13 weeks before the playoffs. I found myself wishing I could bench players in real life. Uh, Andre Johnson maybe not so much because if he is healthy, I want to see him out there. I want to see what he can do with Yates. Uh, so I probably will start him. But I have a guy, I spent a lot of money in one of our leagues on Kevin Smith. I want them to sit him this week. I don't want him to play. I don't I don't need him to play in the league I picked him up in, so I don't want him to. I want him to come back perfectly healthy for when my fantasy playoffs start. Uh, same, I imagine, if you have someone like Michael Vick. There's no reason for him to come back. It doesn't sound like he will because probably there's no reason for him to come back. So... Like you said, it's all a case-by-case basis. It all depends on who you have on the bench. Uh, it depends on the matchup. It depends on what the team has to play for. Like That's the one thing I think, if anything, Adrian Peterson has going against him, is if he's even at 90% and not 100, why run him out there? The Vikings aren't winning anything this year, so I could see them sitting him for that reason. Game-time decisions are scary for that for that right. reason. And that's why we haven't talked about it yet, but maybe next week on 5 on Fantasy we should talk about the little wrinkle that we apply yeah, I like that. Leagues, yep. you know? So maybe we could talk about that next week if you want to make a note. Sounds good. But uh, let's get on to starts and sits for this week. Last week, my quarterback was Cam Newton. He had 208 yards passing, 53 yards rushing, and one TD. I was a little disappointed, to be honest. I thought he'd do more against the Colts. Uh, but you kind of got the sense that watching that game, and I watched some of it, that the Colts really sold out. They, they did everything they could. It almost felt like they felt as if it was their only chance to win. And they gave <laughs> everything that they could to win the game. Yeah, maybe. And they didn't quite accomplish it. My quarterback sit last week was Matt Ra- Nope, I'm looking at my wrong sheet. was Phillip Rivers, who uh, was a good call on my part. He had 188 yards and one TD. Denver really, along with everybody else lately, has slowed San Diego down. And I kind of yeah. jumped on you. I don't know if you wanted to give your sit this Oh, that's start okay. This no, week. Von Miller's a stud, by the way. Yeah, he's great. Uh, my running back starts, I kind of split it. I said if you were in a non-PPR, start D'Angelo Williams. If you did, I think he came away happy, 69 yards rushing and two, two touchdowns. Yeah. I said if you were in a PPR to start uh, Stewart, and if you did, you might be happy depending on the spot. If he was your flex play and he got you 11 points, you're probably pretty happy with sure, that. Sure, why not? Yeah. yeah. Uh, my running back sit last week was another good call. It was Frank Gore. Uh, we already mentioned it against the tough Baltimore defense. He did next to nothing. My receiver start was my most disappointing one. Uh, I had Nate Burleson. I thought the game would be a lot different than it was in Detroit on Thanksgiving. I was surprised that the Detroit offense – didn't use Burleson a little bit more. He had one rush for 11 yards, which probably got you a point, and five catches for 39 yards, which, best-case scenario, he ended your day with nine points, which if he was your third receiver, maybe that's not terrible. Uh, but he disappointed me. I expect a little bit more. And unfortunately, he just didn't get the ball in garbage time. The garbage time touchdown went to the Calvin Johnson. Could have just as easily went to him, but it didn't. Uh, my thinking was that Calvin Johnson would get the – Coverage, yeah. Coverage from Woodson, and uh, I guess it just doesn't matter. When you have a stub like Calvin Johnson on one side, it's tough to start the guy on the other side. Really, when uh, for a team that really struggles against the pass in Green Bay, they didn't give up anything that game other than that garbage time TD. So, uh, like you said, I would have expected this to be much more of a shootout, too. My wide receiver sit 
uh, we've talked about him also at length was uh, Andre Johnson against Jacksonville. Like I said, I hoped I got it wrong because I do have him on a, a team or two. I wasn't. He, like I said, but I believe he had two catches in the game for not many yards, and he's in a quarterback nightmare right now. So we'll see how that plays out. Uh, but I'd be worried a little bit if I was an Andre Johnson owner. All right, getting us going for this week, week 13, a very important one. My QB start is Eli Manning. I got to watch Eli play last night, and he was fantastic. He never quit, despite the fact that his team was way down. And you know what? I think that next week's game for the Giants is going to be a lot like this week's game. I expect the Packers to get way out in front of them, and I would expect that Eli Manning is going to have to spend most of the day in the shotgun throwing the ball. And the reason that the Packers are 31 against the pass, I don't think is because they're a bad defense. I think it's because they get way ahead of teams and they end up basically playing prevent pass defense the rest of the day and just, you know, giving up yards. It's a trade. We'll give you yards, you give us time, and we're going to walk away with a win later. And uh, I think that the last night's Giants game could be very similar to this week's, and I think Eli Manning's a great start. And I have him on one team, and I'm definitely going to be playing him. My sit this week is Matt Ryan. Uh, Maybe not a a stud per se, but he's playing against a tough Houston defense. And, again, Houston without their starting quarterback, actually, and their third-string quarterback. But I just expect Houston's Houston's defense is good on its own. I expect their offense to probably slow the game down a little bit, let uh, Foster and Tate just kind of grind away, keep their defense on the field as little as possible. Uh, so they're fresh when they are on the field. I actually like guys like Tebow and Freeman probably better this week. You know, I was just going to ask you, in the Listener League, which I'm going to update in a minute, I have Matt Ryan and Tim Tebow. So I've been switching them back and forth. I've been right almost every week. Last week I had Matt Ryan in, and that was the right decision. So I guess I'll ask. So I guess you've said it. You would start if you were me. You would start Tebow. Tebow. Tebow over has. Ryan. A, I can't remember off the top of my head. I think they played maybe Minnesota. That sounds like it could be right. I don't know. Yeah, I don't remember exactly who they play, but uh, Denver's defense is good. Uh, Tebow isn't forced to make mistakes. I don't believe he'll be forced to make mistakes this week because I think they have a nice matchup, which I don't have in front of me. Uh, But, yeah, I don't love Matt Ryan's matchup. And I expect it to be something of a low-scoring game for two teams with decent offenses, which I could be wrong about, but uh, Houston's offense has been really good. All right, so I guess uh, according to Don, I should uh, <laughs> I should start. And Tebow, Tebow. Like, like Cam Newton, is probably guaranteed for five points off of rushing yardage. That's what's great about him. You right. can definitely count on him. So, I mean, even if he only throws for 100 and yards. And he might run one in very easily. Could run one in. Yeah, he has 10 or 11 rushing TDs this year. So Right, and the Broncos, you're correct. They do play at Minnesota. Minnesota. So inside... You know, it's cl- just climate it's, controlled, especially if Peterson doesn't play. It's going to be a game where they're not going to be forced to throw a lot, which typically is a bad thing for a quarterback, but not for Tebow, who He'll runs more of an option. Run. Right. All right. My start at running back this week, I think I had it a few weeks ago, and he's been really playing his best football of his career. That's Reggie, Reggie Bush, who I got to watch on Thanksgiving. And watching him on Thanksgiving, you know, he didn't have necessarily his best game. He was okay. But. You see a different you just I see a different player than the one I watched the first four years or so of his career in New Orleans. He's he's getting up north and south quicker than before. There's not much east and west dancing. He's getting into the holes. He's got a great matchup against the twenty seventh rushing defense in Oakland. 
I'd imagine Miami's going to run the ball, and he's the guy that they're handing it to. So why not start Reggie Bush this week? My running back sit this week is Steven Jackson at San Francisco. Uh, San Francisco lost last week. They're going to be A angry. tough game. They're yep. going to be mad. They're as good a defense as anybody has in the league. And Steven Jackson and the Rams' uh, offense has been lacking, to say the least, this year. I almost don't like any Rams. Yeah, I probably wouldn't I might start, start Lloyd. Might. Maybe. But maybe. That's it. But, yeah, I don't – Jackson maybe isn't a stud per se at this year either, but uh, I think it's pretty safe to sit him. He is somebody I would probably sit for someone like D'Angelo Williams this week. All right, my wide receiver start is Des Bryant in Dallas. Dallas has been really getting their passing game going uh, despite some problems earlier in the season. Uh, Tony Romo's healthy. He's not wearing a – rib flak jacket, jacket yeah. anymore and he looks great and i don't know what miles austin's situation is going to be but i wouldn't trust it just yet he's one of those guys that i probably wouldn't play even if he is playing this week so i love des bryant against the 25th pass defense of arizona lauren robinson's been great too uh, miles austin's i probably back. wouldn't hesitate to start him as like a flex either right so i mean if Miles Austin's at least, even the littlest bit nicked up, I, I wouldn't rush him back if I'm Dallas. Yeah, I like the Dallas passing game this week against Arizona. My sit is on the other side of the ball. I'm going to sit Larry Fitzgerald at wide receiver this week. Uh, again, probably can't actually sit him here. My thinking being the Arizona defense is better, I think, than people give them credit for. Uh this game can work out one or two ways. I think it's either going to be a tight game if that Arizona defense can keep it at all at all close, which doesn't really help Fitzgerald because I think then Arizona pounds the ball with Beanie Wells. And if I'm going to be wrong about this, it's going to be because the Cowboys blow him away and half of this game is played in garbage time. But that said, I'm going to sit with uh, Larry Fitzgerald as my sit. There was a lot of garbage time scoring in the Saints and Giants game last night. A lot. Yeah, Victor Cruz had like 200 Victor yards Cruz or something. Victor Cruz had a huge something wild. garbage 160. time, long garbage time TD. 70 yards. Uh, Pierre Thomas had a garbage time TD. Mark Ingram had Ingram. a garbage time TD. Yep. So be careful of that. All right, real quick, just want to update the listener league. Uh, Don and I are both in very good position to possibly win our divisions. I'm in a better position. I'm in first place. I have the tiebreaker uh, over Gordon Fishstick, so I control my own destiny. If I win, I will claim the bye, uh, unless Gordon Fishsticks can make up quite a bit of points on me. Uh, Don, on the other hand, is one game behind Pittsburgh Feelers. I need a uh, lot of points, too, I think. You are behind by about 50 points. Yep, so I need a big game. So you need a big game. I actually, last week, uh, almost, uh, well, at 144 points, my opponent had 88, so I easily beat the Cadillac or Cardiac Cats. Uh, Don lost to Avatar's Jackson, 122 to 99. Um, it looks like, well, technically, Don, you could miss the playoffs, although doubtful. I cannot miss the playoffs. Yeah, I would need someone to score a, a ton of points. Right. And me to have a lousy week. Right. So we've both all but defended our turf here, which I'm proud of. Yeah, it's good. All right, we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back with Tim Graham. Our next guest is from Wyndham, Ohio, and is a graduate of Baldwin Wallace College in Berea, Ohio. 
He spent eight years working for the Buffalo News, where he covered hockey and boxing, while serving two terms as the president of the Boxing Writers Association of America. He then moved on to cover the Miami Dolphins for the Palm Beach Post in 2008. He left Sunny Florida to join ESPN.com, where he blogged about the AFC East. This summer, he returned to Buffalo, where he is again a writer for the Buffalo News as an enterprise reporter, making his third appearance on the Sportscasters. Warm welcome to the always engaging Tim Graham, who now has a deep, dark secret that he can hold over my head. <laughs> You're, I'll never tell anyone. Don't tell anyone what happened to him. I won't. Okay. It's the, uh, it's the beauty of uh, editing. <laughs> that, no one will ever know. That it is. You know, last time we talked, I, I mentioned this is your third time here on the show. The first time was over the summer. And then the second time was a much happier time for Buffalo and especially Bills fans. Uh, they have kind of bottomed out since we've talked last. The Bills lost, I don't know, I lost track many games in a row. Uh, Fred four. Jackson, yeah, four, okay. Fred Jackson is gone for the season. Uh, they spent a lot of money on Ryan Fitzpatrick, who hasn't lived up to it since. And they had their wide receiver get them in a position where they were forced to be lectured on national television by, as you put it, Andy Rooney, uh, but it was actually Bob Costas. So what to be of the Bills, Tim? Well, you know, it's reminiscent of, uh, of last year. It's reminiscent of 2008. You know, there are so many different ways you can look at it. But, uh, you know, when I start thinking that it's reminiscent of different years, that uh, leads us to the conclusion that uh, the Bills have pretty much been playing on an endless loop of mediocrity slash heartbreak slash misery slash add whatever other word you want to throw in there to describe being frustrated with a team that hasn't been to the playoffs since the 1999 season. But, you know, Stevie Johnson went through a little bit of a national hubbub last year when he seemed to blame God for dropping the pass against the Steelers, which happened almost a year to the day of his uh, ill-conceived uh, touchdown celebration and subsequent drop Sunday uh, against the Jets. And uh, from a record standpoint, you're looking back at 2008 when they started off so well. And, you know, I guess if there's one good thing about this is that I think the fans in western New York didn't go all in with the Bills like maybe they would have, you know, at 5-2, and two, coming off a, a pretty dominant victory over a Washington Redskins team that, you know, even though they had John Beckett quarterback and were ravaged by injuries, the Bills did to them what a playoff caliber team is supposed to do to a team that was in the state of the Washington Redskins and just uh, totally obliterated them, 10 sacks, lopsided victory. And uh, everybody you would think was talking playoffs. But really in western New York, I think a lot of people were apprehensive because they still remember 2008 and getting off to that great start and collapsing down the home stretch in a division that didn't have Tom Brady in it and all the things that seemed to be in their favor didn't come to fruition. So, you know, that's the, I guess maybe the only saving grace is that everybody in Western New York didn't just get full throttle behind this Bills team, um, which is evidenced in so many ways. You know, there's still 20 some thousand tickets remaining for the, game against Denver Broncos and uh, Tim Tebow on Christmas Eve. Uh, you know, that's not uh, that's not the type of 
ticket availability you'd expect to see from a team that started off 5-2 and two and looked to be going to the playoffs for the first time in well over a decade. But, you know, Bill's fans have, they want to, they wanted to wait and see a little bit more before they jumped on that bandwagon, and they, uh, it's a good thing they didn't because they would have gotten whiplash when it came to a screeching halt. Let's, uh, let's talk about Stevie Johnson for a second, and then let's go on to some bigger picture things. But as far as Stevie Johnson, what was your initial reaction when you saw the touchdown dance? I thought it was on a very, uh, from a performance standpoint, I thought it was clever. But I cringed as he did it because I'm a big believer in, you know, there's some certain etiquette to trash talking. And trash talking is best done when you're in a position of comfort, uh, when the opponent can't uh, cram it right down your throat. And to do it in the second quarter of a close football game in East Rutherford, I just knew that uh, this was going to come back to haunt him. I think if he had done it in the fourth quarter of a game in which he scores a touchdown to put the Bills up, uh, you know, 10 points or two scores or however you want to put it, then I think we're looking at it as, yeah, it was funny. He'll take the fine. I think Bills fans would probably even say it was worth the fine or whatever ridicule he might have received. And you know what? He probably wouldn't have received a fraction of the ridicule had the Bills won the game. But the fact that he did it in the second quarter and then the sequence of events in which it led to the guy he was mocking scoring the touchdown right before halftime, coming down with the crucial catch on third and 11 with about two minutes to go in the game. Uh, you know, it really looked bad, and it, uh, it turned into an even bigger embarrassment, and I think you know, justifiably so. I, I, think, uh, I think he shouldn't have done it. So if, if he was going to do it, you know, do it late in the game. Uh, but to do it so early, I I guess I believe I'm a believer in karma, and uh, it came back to haunt him. You know, he he kind of said that he thought that he, he he. This is the way he made it sound. He made it sound like he thought that Plaxico Burris would eventually get a touchdown, and then would celebrate in a way that would mock Stevie Johnson, and that it would be a right. rivalry thing. That's kind of what he said on local radio yesterday. Yeah, he does that make any sense that, to you? What's that? I said, does that make any sense to you? Uh, it makes little sense to me. I okay. guess it makes sense in the regard of you have to you have to consider who it's coming from. I think that that's, that sounds logical in his in his mind, and maybe Plaxico Burris would have done something. He obviously didn't. It was one of the classier celebrations you'd see. You know, Plaxico Burris scores the touchdown holds the ball in his hand, didn't even spike it, didn't even jump up and down until other teammates came over to greet him in the end zone and kind of forced the issue. I think Plaxico Burris was just going to trot back to the sideline. Um, you know, not a lot of emotion. He scored a big touchdown and, and did it the way that I think a lot of people would want their players to handle it. You know, the old phrase, act like you've been there before. And in Stevie Johnson's mind, I'm sure maybe, I don't know if at that point he got disappointed, you know, that... Uh, that Plaxico Burst didn't give it back to him. I don't know if at that point he's thinking, uh-oh, not only did the guy just mock score a touchdown, but he's not playing uh, the game with me that I right. wanted him to play. <laughs> but I also have to consider that, you know, when Stevie Johnson says that uh, yesterday, you know, in the interview you're referring to, in which he tried to justify his actions and, and say that he thought he'd get in a little back and forth with Plaxico Burris, 
you know, I think he was maybe grasping a little bit. I don't really know if that is what he truly thought would happen. You know, he said a lot of things during that interview that really showed that he didn't necessarily have a big grasp on on what he'd done. You know, he'd also said that, you know, he works hard during the week and, you know, you score right. a touchdown and you deserve to revel in it um, to that uh, you know, to that extent, which I think a lot of people would roll their eyes at and say, no, you don't really. Um, so I think he was, he's still in a very defensive posture about what happened. I'm sure he still has scars from what happened a year ago with his tweet about God that landed him on the view of all places. <laughs> you know, this was a relatively unknown receiver at the time. Stevie Johnson wasn't a thousand yard receiver. Um, had, you know, was just starting to get known as a threat in the NFL. And now he ends up on The View. He was on the front page of CNN.com, you know, for questioning God. And so I'm sure he's still feeling the sting of that uh, yesterday when he's trying to, you know, justify his actions from the game before. I'm sure he had already gotten a, a pretty stern talking to from Chan Gailey about it and uh, probably, you know, too embarrassed to, to to admit, now I had heard that he'd been working on that celebration for quite a long time, and that uh, some of his teammates knew about it and were warning him not to do it. Um, Jeez. He said that it was a spur of the moment thing. So, you know, I think it's a guy who's grasping with uh, making another, you know, for hu- you know, humiliating his team, embarrassing himself on a national stage, not just on a f- national football stage, but a mainstream stage. Um, you know, this is the type of thing that will end up on Jay Leno and Conan O'Brien and David Letterman, like he did last year. He was a Conan O'Brien joke last year when he when he blamed God for dropping that pass against the Steelers. So, and you, it's uh, it's fascinating. Stevie Johnson never fails to give you something to talk about. And you know, you bring up that that tweet from last year. They have to play Denver in a couple weeks. You better be careful. Tim Tebow might come up beside his head for those <laughs> comments. You know what I mean? You better watch his back in, in that that day. It's lucky. He guy. might actually get, get retweeted by God. You know, God may you know thunderbolt or something. I don't know. Right? Yeah, God is. I don't know on if God has, does God have an account? Probably. He has to. Him. He has to. I I follow uh, I follow the Holy Spirit, but I don't um, follow uh, God. Uh, we better be careful because there's chance of lightning here in western new york today uh you know the the second part of that is the drops at the end of the game and probably one was worse than the other but the one right down the middle where it seems like he could have at least gotten the ball into the into the red zone deep into the red zone do you think that he lacks concentration on the field and that's why we've seen this happen in these big moments is he spending too much time thinking about celebrations or are they unrelated, and where do you see him as a player? Because the Bills want to count on him or treat him like he's like the new Andre Reed, but I never remember Andre Reed dropping those kinds of passes. It's that dreaded C word in sports, right? Choke. You know, is he a choke artist? And we've seen evidence of it twice in key situations. Darrell Rivas said yesterday in a follow-up interview with Jets reporters that uh, if Stevie Johnson catches that pass, he's going in. Now, Rex Ryan refuted that, but Rex Ryan would always defend his defense, uh, his defensive players, and that, yeah, they would have made the play. But Revis uh, conceded that uh, he catches that ball with the way everybody's running, with the way everybody's spread out over the field and the speed that Stevie Johnson has. He's he's going in. He's going the distance. 
Um, the ball goes right through his hands. You know, that's one of those, you know, automatic, you know, instinctive responses. When you're a NFL receiver of what is Stevie Johnson in his fourth or fifth fourth season, and he's been a college receiver, and he's played catch a billion times, and he's been in front of that jugs machine a million times, and all the routes that he's run and the balls that he's caught not only from Ryan Fitzpatrick, but from all the quarterbacks. You know, there's just an you it in it just it's almost in your DNA, the ability to catch a football, and to see that ball go through his hands like it did, it leads you to wonder if there is uh, you know if there was something psychological in play there. Now he said yesterday on that interview with uh, WGR that uh, you know it was a play that was drawn up right there on the spot it was improvised it's something that you know ryan fitzpatrick also had commented on but his explanation stevie johnson's uh, of dropping the ball was that it was improvised and the ball wasn't where he thought it was going to be and it surprised him but look his hands were up his hands responded his eyes his brain his arms his hands his legs all responded to the fact that the ball was in flight not its way so at some point on that instinctual level, even if the ball surprises him, even if the ball gets up on him in a hurry, his body responded in a way like you would expect from a guy who's been in front of a jugs machine his, you know, for the past seven years of his life and has had balls thrown at him or zipped at him or whatever. You know, These are drills that you go through. You get into an instinctual phase with this to take thinking out of it. But at some point, Something happened to where the ball went right through his hands. So maybe he thought about it too much. Maybe he the instinctual part was sound and the psychological part um, crept into his head. Maybe he was thinking about the celebration. You know, maybe he was thinking about Plaxico Burris not responding in kind. If that is in fact uh, what we're supposed to believe uh, was was the intention of Stevie Johnson's when he did that celebration. The fact that he's going to win the game for his team, much like he thought he was going to win the game for his team against the Steelers. Uh, so that would be, just as somebody who's observed sports for as long as I have and have been around professional athletes in all kinds of different sports, that's what I would tend to believe, is the fact that he was thinking about it too much and he choked. Mm-hmm. And when it comes time to sign a guy, do you want to sign a guy who has a choke gene in his DNA? And I'd like to see more out of Stevie Johnson. You know, he's relatively new on the scene still. This is really only his second season in the NFL as a regular starter. You know, even last year, he got benched. He got removed from the starting lineup for, for a game or two. So you know, early in the season, you know, he's still making his way, making his name in the NFL. He, wasn't he has exactly a chance a to overcome this perception. Yeah. Uh, but the Bills have a tough decision to make. Do they want to give him the chance to overcome this perception in a Bills uniform? Or do you want to say, look, this isn't the kind of guy that we can count on, and then he goes off and overcomes that perception for the San Francisco 49ers or the Oakland Raiders? You know, I was thinking about him last night, and I was watching the Saints and Giants game, and Drew Brees threw a pass to Marcus Colson that hit him in the hands. Marcus Colston is also a seventh-round pick, which I believe Stevie Johnson was. If not, he was a sixth, but uh, a late-round pick anyway. And the ball hit Colston in the hands, and he started to run upfield without the ball, dropped it. Very next play, Drew Brees goes right back to Marcus Colston. Ball hits him in the hands again. Marcus Colston catches it, moves the ball down, Saints score on the next play. And 
I was thinking about Stevie Johnson, and he dropped that ball on second down, I believe, and got another chance on fourth down. Maybe not as easy of a play, but again, he didn't make the play. Um, maybe, maybe he's just not that he's not what they thought, right? I mean, he wasn't a first round pick. I mean, he's a seventh round pick or sixth round pick, so maybe he's not yeah, the been talent. An, there's been an evolution to Stevie Johnson. I think I get where you're, where you're going with this. He's he's turned out to be so much more than they thought when they drafted him. And I know I talked to a, a source, you know, with the Buffalo Bills, who he got to his first rookie camp, and even the people who had scouted him and drafted him. Uh, once they get, saw him on the field at the rookie camp, the, he popped out at them as, wow, this guy's going to be special. Now, it took some time for him to get on the field because the Bills had, you know, too many receivers. You know, they had they, they went out and got Carroll Owens the one year that also really, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, hindered uh, Stevie Johnson's development. But then this year, and what, or what happened last year, and then you get into training camp this year, and they trade Lee Evans, and they decide that they're going to put all of their money on Stevie Johnson as their top receiver, you're right. Then he maybe isn't what they thought he was going to be. So I think it's, you know, the Bills got lucky with him in, fa- in, the, in the, the fact that they drafted him where they did and were able to develop him into a regular NFL uh, receiver who can be a threat and give defenses something to worry about on a game-to-game or even a play-by-play basis. But this year, the numbers haven't been there. You know, he has very few uh, yards, you know, very few big plays. In fact, Sunday, which I think is the thing that gets lost in the whole thing because of the celebration and the drop, uh, Sunday was his best day of the year. You could probably argue yep. it, it was his best day of the last two years because of who he was going up against. Mm-hmm. He made Darrell Revis look like an average NFL cornerback, and nobody does that. So that's the, where I kind of feel badly for Stevie Johnson because he was having one of those signature afternoons that you then uh, allows your agent on Monday morning to give the Bills a phone call and say, uh, hey, look, you ready to talk contract yet or what? We have a month left in this season, and if we don't get this done, my guy's going to test free agency, and you may not get a chance to to get him back. And the Bills are going to be fumbling over themselves to get the guy who made Darrell Rivas look ordinary under contract. Well, now the Bills have some things to think about. They have the, the fact that he doesn't make very wise decisions to think about. They have the drops to think about. They have his reactions to think about in terms of, you know, going on the radio and some of the, the excuses he's made for his decisions and the drops yesterday or uh, Sunday. So, yeah, the Bills, uh, the Bills have the leverage now. It went from Stevie Johnson have quite a bit of leverage at about 3.30 on Sunday afternoon to being about 10 minutes after 4. All of a sudden, the Bills have quite a bit of it. The Sportscasters are here with Tim Graham, who you can find on Twitter. He is at by Tim Graham. He also, as I said in his introduction, is now an enterprise reporter for the Buffalo News, which means on Sundays, make sure you check, as my girlfriend does for me, you check religiously the spotlight section, where in this week's Sunday paper, he had an article about uh, a mother who basically gambled away the money raised at a benefit for her son who had cancer, Sherry Holcomb. You can find that right on the cover of uh, this Sunday's paper if you still have it, or I'm sure you can find it online. 
And um, I guess the last thing I want to ask you before I let you go, because I know the Sabres are playing tonight and you did say you had other things to do, although we'd love to talk to you all night if we could. But last thing I want to say is every Saturday I watch players like Andrew Luck and Robert Griffin III and Landry Jones and Matt Barkley make all these great plays in college, and it seems like this year might be one of the best first rounds for quarterbacks in a long, long time. Did the Bills make a mistake in rushing to re-sign Ryan Fitzpatrick? And do you have any indication what exactly the rush was? No, I don't think they made a mistake. Uh, their hands were tied. You know, they were really in a bad spot. And you know, let's go back to when he signed the contract. I think they had they were either four and two or five and two. Um, he had captured the hearts and the imagination of everybody in Western New York, all the Bills fans around the country. For the first time in a long time, the Bills had a likable quarterback. They've had uh, a run of guys who Bills fans just wanted to, uh, you know, tie up with a cinder block and drop into Lake Erie. You know, J.P. Lossman, Trent Edwards, right. you can go on back down, down the line. Uh, Rob Johnson, all those guys. The Bills finally had a guy who was going to, uh, who was blossoming into folk hero status. Everything from the beard. His beard had a mystique. Still does. <laughs> he wears his wedding ring when he plays. Uh, he's from Harvard. Uh, he's funny. He's great in interviews. He's great with fans. Uh, he comes off, even though he's a Harvard graduate, he comes off as uh, a guy that you'd have a beer with, or a guy you'd talk, of, uh, you know, over the back, over the, over the fence in your backyard. You know, he's like your neighbor. You know, he's like your the guy who you work with, the guy that you go out and have beers with on Friday night. So they, the Bills had to, you know, there was a lot of public pressure on the Bills to bring him back, but there's also some football strategy that really was in play. They were winning, and the Bills. You know, you mentioned some great quarterbacks there who were coming out in the draft. But the Bills were not going to be in the Andrew Luck sweepstakes, not in the Matt Barkley sweepstakes, or you know whoever else you may really want to uh, anchor or be the foundation of your, your team in April when it comes time to draft because they were looking at the playoffs. And if you're a playoff team, where are you drafting? You're drafting somewhere in the 20s. So there were no guarantees that the Bills were going to be able to get the quarterback that they wanted because – they're, they were going too well. You couldn't gamble with not bringing back the quarterback who led you to the playoffs in terms of public perception. Or when I say led you to the playoffs, I'm talking right, about hypothetically you know, at the time a month ago. Right. The the fans would have revolted. So you would have had a public relations nightmare on your hands. And let's say you don't even get to the playoffs or whatever. You go into the season. You lose Ryan Fitzpatrick to free agency. Then what do you have? If you don't get a quarterback in the draft that you like at 21 or 22 or wherever you're drafting, you're stuck with Tyler Thigpen as your quarterback. <laughs> so the Bills were pretty much forced to sign Ryan Fitzpatrick. And was it a mistake? I don't think so. I think they did the right thing. It seemed to be decent value uh, the way it averages out. He's about the 16th highest paid quarterback in the NFL when you average it out. Uh, they can still draft a guy. If it comes time, their turn to pick, and there's a guy there that they like, you know, they can still draft him. And Ryan Fitzpatrick is the type of guy who is going to help groom 
a young quarterback for 2013, uh, for 2014, whatever. And when it comes time for him to, um, you know, surrender his job as the starting quarterback, I think that he's going to or would do it in such a way that wouldn't create a, a huge conflict like uh, J.P. Lossman did or Doug Flutie did when Rob Johnson was in. I think that, you know, he's the type of guy that if you have in place as a veteran, it's, uh, it's going to be beneficial for whoever they bring in. So if I'm a Bills fan, I'm hoping that they do have a crack at one of those, one of those guys you mentioned, RG3 maybe. I don't know. I don't know how it's all going to slide or who's right. going to who's going how it's all going to be slotted or who's going to fall to what spot but it's looking more and more like the bills are going to be drafting somewhere in the 11 12 13 range than 22 right and if you figure so, there's going to be five guys they should be to have a shot at one of them and you're going to have a lot of teams at the front end of the draft who already have quarterbacks right like now St. granted and... a team like the St. Louis Rams they're going to have a tough decision to make because just you know, three months ago, every thought, everybody thought Sam Bradford was, you know, possibly on the verge of a Hall of Fame career with the way some of the hype was going for him. So do the Rams draft a quarterback? No. Um, you know, Carolina's not going to draft a quarterback, probably. No. Nope. Uh, so you can go on down the list and, and see some teams that, uh, that, were, that are going to skip that position. And I think, yeah, you could, you could probably – assume that the Bills will have an intriguing quarterback option uh, when it comes time for them to pick, especially with the way their season is uh, unraveling now. All right, Tim, I don't want to hold you up anymore. Couldn't ask for more from you. Thank you very much. I'm sure we'll talk to you soon. Oh, thanks for having me on. It's always, uh, it's always a blast, and it's good conversation. So anytime you need me on, don't hesitate. Okay, thanks, buddy. I have to thank all our guests on the program today. Huge thank you to Lee Jenkins, our good buddy. Also want to thank James Andrew Miller for coming on the show and promoting his book. And we also have to thank Tim Graham. Tim Graham is a, a new and great friend to the show. It's, I'm very pleased that we uh, reached out to him and made that connection. Yeah, he's been nothing but nice. All right. Uh, reminder, www.facebook.com slash the sportscasters. Tell me who... Your favorite guest was on the show today, and you could win a copy of Those Guys Have All the Fun by James Andrew Miller. Again, the Facebook address is facebook.com slash sportscasters. You can find us on Twitter. We are at sports underscore casters. You're welcome to email us anytime, thesportscasters at gmail.com. Our blog is thesportscasters.blogspot.com, but I am also blogging on Sunday mornings at proplayerinsiders.com. And you can find all this information on our website, www.sports-casters.com. One last thing to do today, and that's pick four. Last week, I <clears throat> went three and one. Nice. I won LSU over Arkansas, 41-17. to 17. I laid 13 points, covered. Uh, I had the Packers minus six over the Lions, covered. Easily, yeah. And I had the Saints minus seven over the Giants. That covered very and easily. covered. My only loss, I doubled in my bull prediction. I doubled the Thanksgiving 
winning margin to 32 oh, yes. points. It was 23. All the favorites won, and they covered by a combined 23 points. Not quite 32, but it was close. And if you take away the really late touchdown that the Lions scored, I would have been really close. That's right. So I'm glad the Lions scored that. Otherwise, I would have been kicking myself. Don, on the other hand. What, one and three? One and three again. Ugh. Broncos plus seven over the Chargers. Seems like every week you can find a game that we should be betting hundreds of dollars on. <laughs> like every week you have this one game where you say, I'll take it all day, and it wins every week. Yeah. But you missed on the game of the week. You were kind of hoping for chaos probably more than making a pick. Right, right. That didn't work out. Arkansas plus 13. Yeah, the Cowboys minus seven, which I like too, but the Dolphins hung in there with them all day. That was 20 to 19. Ironically, the same score as the Leon Leck game, just flipped the winner. <laughs> and you had the Jets minus 16 over the Bills, Ugh. and the Bills showed up. They did. And uh, only lost by four and probably should have won outright. All right, let's start this week. Our game of the week is a division rivalry of sorts, the Bengals at the Steelers. The Steelers are giving up seven points here. I'm going to take the Steelers. The Bengals haven't proven to me they can beat uh, good teams, basically, and the Steelers are at home. They need the game as much as the Bengals do, so I know they're missing Palomalu potentially, but I'm going to take the Steelers minus seven. I'm going to take the Steelers minus seven as well. They probably didn't show me anything on Sunday No, that would have led me to make this pick. I just think that this is a game where they impose their will on the Bengals. I think the Bengals still haven't convinced themselves that they're the kind of team that can beat Cincinnati or uh, the Pittsburgh. Ravens or Pittsburgh. Right. And I think that will work to Pittsburgh's advantage. And I think last week's game was a bit of a wake-up call for the Steelers, and I expect them to come out, you know, guns blazing. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the Steelers as well. My host choice this week is the Falcons at Houston. It's a 1 o'clock game on Sunday at Fox. Houston right now is actually a three-point underdog. So I'm going to take Houston plus the points. I think they're a good enough team to survive even having a third-string quarterback in there, and I think the Falcons are kind of a up-and-down team. And this is this is a big test for the Falcons going into Houston, playing against that defense, uh, playing against those two running backs. I know Atlanta's rush defense is pretty good, but I'm not sure they've faced a rushing attack like this yet. So I'm going to take Houston on the points. All right, my host choice it was uh, worked last week. I'm going to take my Saints. They're minus nine against the Lions, which went up. That went up a little bit. It was seven earlier. It went up a couple of points. I assume with the announcement of the suspension Sue, to Dominic yeah. and Sue. The game's played. It's flexed from a one o'clock game to an eight o'clock game on Sunday, December fourth on NBC. What, what did it replace? Do you know off the top of your head? I don't, but I know it was a stinker. Yeah, it was an all-out stinker. I remember seeing it. So I will take the Saints and lay the nine points. I feel like they got it going right now. I really do. My worldwide leader pick is the Chargers at the Jags. Uh, the Jags, again, are a home underdog. They're getting three points. The Chargers haven't beaten anybody in, I believe, six or seven games. They're on some horrendous slide. The Jaguars are a team that play people tight for the most part. Uh, they have a solid defense. I think that with the news of the new ownership, maybe they'll have a different attitude in this game. That's the Monday night game. Uh, Give me the Jags plus the three points. All right, my worldwide leader pick is pretty exciting. A game I'm pretty much I'm pretty excited about, and it's Oklahoma versus Oklahoma State Saturday, December third, eight o'clock on ABC. 
Oklahoma State has a chance to win and win big and potentially play in the national championship game. Oklahoma has a chance to defeat Oklahoma State and go to the BCS and be the Big 12 champion again. This is a game that it just seems like Bob Stoops always wins. When the national championship chances are over, (laughs) it seems like they still find their way into the BCS as Big 12 champions one way or another. I think it could be a close game. I don't know if Oklahoma will win or not, but I'll take them in the three and a half points. I haven't had the chance to do it all year, take Oklahoma as as an underdog. Uh, So I'll do it this week, and I'll take Oklahoma. It's uh, Saturday night in front of the country on ABC at 8 o'clock. My bold prediction involves the Saints, who you already picked. I'm going to take the Saints to win by the same margin as they beat the Giants. I'm going to take the Saints by 25. I think the Giants are a better team than the Lions. Uh, It's probably a lot to ask for a team to do that two weeks in a row, but the Saints are going to, or the Lions are going to be without Sue, as we already mentioned. I think the Giants' defense is probably better than the Lions' defense, so there's no reason to think they can't do it again. So give me the Saints minus 25. You know, I want to tell you one thing about the Saints. They really are starting to feel like the 2009 Saints. I was thinking about that, uh, watching them play last night. That last year was just an uneven year. You call they it the Super Bowl hangover or whatever. Right. And I was actually thinking watching that game, it's, it's too bad that the Saints will not get to face Green Bay in New Orleans. Right. That's going to be the one. Th- can they win on the road? Maybe not. But, but they look unbeatable at home. They played a game last night. The way they played it was the way they played games in 2009. They gave up yards, but somehow they didn't give up points. Right. Right? It felt like the Giants were going up and down the field on the Saints in the first half. And the Saints are winning the game at halftime 21-3. to Yep. That's how the team played in 2009. And Drew Brees is, is playing at some kind of level. People talk about Aaron Rodgers all the time, rightfully so, but Drew Brees is right there. Right there. Uh, my bowl prediction, Thursday night, it's a short week. The Eagles have to travel to Seattle. They're a three-point favorite, but you know what? The Eagles are dead. I've hated them all season, way back to when the Dream Team stuff was going on. I was hesitant about this Eagles team. I'm going to flip it. I'm going to lay three, take the Seahawks at home. I think they win the game outright, and I think they'll easily cover three points. That's my bowl prediction. Seahawks over the Eagles. It's the Thursday night game at 820 on the NFL Network. I'm sure the NFL Network is Pumped thrilled to, to be one, making yeah. the trip. Yeah, they always have good games, it seems like, on those Thursday nights. All right. Once again, we want to thank James Andrew Miller. We want to thank Lee Jenkins. We want to thank Tim Graham. We have some really, really exciting stuff coming up in the next couple of weeks. I'm not ready to give it up just yet, but exciting stuff coming. One thing I can say is Luke Wynn should be with us next, next week. week. He yep. was supposed to be with us today, but he had something come up at the last minute, so... Should be a guarantee to have him next week. Don, you can cue the hip. All right.